Yep. Give me a nod yeah, when you're ready. Shooter's ready. Stand by. Everyone, this is Matt Gunlock from the 3GIQ podcast. I'm here joined here today with Frank Gal, my co-host. Um, also, I have Ajax Trueblood, the author of Bastards and Brothers, Chris Aiva, the company commander uh, for Third Battalion, Second Marines back during th- uh, 2005. And I have our company first, Sergeant Sean Gregory, who who was uh, back with us during that deployment. Again, uh, this is a very different episode. We're not trying to turn into a Brovit podcast by any means. Um, this podcast, so this deployment, this experience has some that's is something that happened to me. It kind of shaped who I was, and it kind of helped direct me. Uh, and later on in life, getting into three gun USPSA, the practical shooting disciplines, trying to always better myself. So this is something that is very relevant to the warfighter culture. And in terms of in, in terms of practical shooting, this is the direction that the Marine Corps shooting team is taking in order to train mm-hmm. Marines uh, to stay relevant and to, uh, to stay relevant in, in in keeping Marines alive and increasing that survivability and lethality. Um, so. I guess uh, I'll, I'll start with saying back in 2005, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines departed on a deployment to Kilo Company, specifically to al And then you had Lima Company and Al-Assad and India Company and Uceba. Uh, it was during a time where it was kind of cowboys and in- Indians. Anything goes. Uh, and it was just it was just a busy deployment of major clearing operations not the stability and support operations that you, a lot of people have heard on after that. It was much like what you would hear from the Battle of Fallujah. So there was a lot of action going on. Um, and like I said, this is something that helped shape my life and my leadership style and how I raised and treated my Marines and used those experiences. And it's something that helped pivot me into the competitive shooting sports uh, while still in the Marine Corps. So... If uh, before we start with the questions um, around the table, we'll start with Ajax and we'll go with Chris and then Sean. If you guys can kind of quickly introduce yourselves uh, and kind of give your background. Hi. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm Ajax. Uh, that's a call sign, by the way, from the Air Force. Uh, and uh, I'm a retired uh, Air Force intelligence officer, which is weird because why am I writing a book about Marines? Um uh, so that's, uh, I'll try to keep it short, but basically I had a, a 2007 deployment during the surge, uh, and I was keenly aware of what was then called the awakening, still called the awakening. And after that deployment, I started to do a lot of research on how did this all happen? Because the awakening basically just flipped the whole script, 
change things for the better. And out there in Anbar, the, the worst province um, where al Qaim is, uh, the, uh, the Sunni tribes started to flip. And uh, by 2007, this awakening movement had swept across the country and things had changed very drastically. So I was very curious about that and started doing a lot of research. And what I say is step-by-step, step, I learned about the 3-2 Battalion and and its uh, seven-month deployment there in 2005. And I've always been one for, I don't know, the, the ones that don't get the press, the, the, un, the unsung heroes, if you will. And, and I realized that 3-2 was an untold story and in a, in a place that was pivotal. So started a long journey to write this book and have since uh, made all kinds of connections uh, with the Marines that were there and others from other units and uh, have put this book together out of a long, long series of interviews and, and research. So that's, that's based. Oh, another piece of information you need to know is uh uh, like I said, I was an intelligence officer, but also have uh, been uh, at CIA for a number of years as an analyst. So that's part of my background. My turn? Yes, sir. Okay. Hey, um, Chris Aiva. Uh, I'm a retired Marine. I retired back in, in 2016. I'm in the private sector now. Um, you know, just to build upon what, what Ajax said. First, I, I get like an email or maybe it's Facebook. And there's like, it's from Ajax True Blood. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> this, this is, but luckily, you know, I, I knew it wasn't like a fishing because he's, he's not that pretty. And and um, I went with it. And, um, you know, it's it's been a great experience for me, both to, um, you know, learn about what happened, learned other people's perspectives. But but for me, uh, my grandfather, who um, fought in World War II with, with the 1st Infantry Division, at his funeral, it was that, you know, Anthony Aiva fought with Patton against Rommel. And I suddenly realized that like, you know, a lot of our histories are tied by some of the generals and, and some notable figures. And what I love about this experience and, and, and why like I bonded with Ajax and, and did introductions is I like that this book tells so many different stories from different POVs. And um, I'm very committed to it because uh, that was my grandfather's life work. Uh, and, and in many cases, stuff that we did in the Marines, those little actions are our are, are life works. And nobody can ever take that away from us. No one can ever take that away from me. And I'm very proud of my service, but more proud of, of the Marines and obviously very proud of the Marines of, of Company K. So that's my introduction and, and motivation. And uh, I'm really appreciative of, of the book to tell the legacy. Thank you, Sean. Uh, yeah, um, same thing. I'm a retired Marine First Sergeant. I retired in 2009. Uh, <clears throat> I was lucky. I was a grunt my entire time and actually got to stay in the infantry as a first sergeant. Usually that's the kiss of death. Pick up first sergeant as an infantry guy and they send you to the air wing or engineers or something like that. Um, and luckily I got to go to 3-2 and, and, and be the first sergeant for Kilo Company. Same thing when uh, Ajax reached out to got it, got uh, his, my info from uh, Chris and he reached out to me and I, and I, you know, I was honored to be able to uh, uh, tell the stories of uh, what, like, like Chris said, the Marines, because uh, they're the ones that did all the hard work, hard, heavy lifting. Uh, we just kind of, I mean, 
myself and Chris just kind of pointing them in the right direction and, and uh, give them the assets they needed to do the job. So it's been a complete honor to be a, a part of this. And, uh, you know, that's a little bit, that's just basic my introduction as well. Um, <clears throat> so, and it was a, it was a hard tour, but it was, uh, uh, like you said, Matt, it was, uh, kind of defined, you know, my end of my career in the Marine Corps. So, uh, it was, uh, it's a pleasure. That's pretty much it. No, I appreciate that. All right. So we'll start with the questions, but first off, Hey Jax, thank you for sending me a copy of the book, read through it, really enjoyed it. Did, um, did you read the whole thing? That's I, freaking long. I, yeah, <laughs> it is. Um, so I'm a grad student in history at Georgetown right now. I read three books a week. So when Matt told me that he wanted to read through a book within one week and then interview with the author, I was like, all right, we'll get it done. So um, we have a term called gutting the book in grad school. So I did have to gut the book a little bit. Um, but from what I can tell, um, it's very well pieced together. We can talk a lot about the research that you did, the work you did in piecing together all these stories. You mentioned in your introduction to this episode, but also in your introduction in the book itself that you're an outsider. And a lot of people are going to ask, why is an Air Force intelligence officer the one writing this book? Um, I would like to ask you, does being an outsider help in writing a book like this from this kind of perspective? And how did your background as an intelligence analyst inform the way that you approached writing this book? Let me start with the the, the second one first. Um, so basically, it helped me as an analyst, you know, long experienced analyst, putting different pieces of the puzzle together. I mean, that's what Intel analysts do. And that's what I was doing here. Uh, so that helped. Uh, however, it also, I'm also also a little bit of OCD and that I just researched it to death, which slowed me down and bogged me down in some cases. It also provided a lot of richness to it. Uh, so the reader is going to benefit from that, but it was pretty frustrating to me to go so slow uh, as I poked into all these different, different aspects. I mean, not just the Marine stories, but there's, there's a lot of context operational, uh, even strategic. If you, if you think of it that way of, uh, what was going on in far West Anbar in 2005 and the significance of it and the overall context of how, what, what it meant for the war. So a lot of digging, possibly too much digging. <laughs> so yeah, it helped me in that I, you know, I looked at it from the larger perspective from the start, uh, but that also kind of got in my way uh, as far as um, being an outsider that again, pros and cons. I, I bring a, a wider perspective, which I think uh, was was very helpful. And like I said, I wanted to provide. When I decided to start writing a book, it's like I want to provide the larger story, not just the firsthand shooter. Um, you know, I was there aspect of it. So I wanted to blend those two things, and I'm glad. I'm glad it's coming across because. So a lot of the Marines that I've talked to that, you know, they've got, I had no idea. I had no idea this was going on in the same battle space I was in. Um, and of course the, the lower ranks, uh, you know, that was what you would expect, but, but even Chris just mentioned that, you know, there's stuff that was happening that he wasn't aware of. So um, I tried to do that. I think I succeeded. Uh, but as far as gaining access to, 
the guys to the grunts, there was definitely an uphill climb there. So here's this weird guy, like Chris is explaining. I think one time he goes, everyone's telling me that you're just a fake. By the way, you realize that people think you're like a, you know, fictional character or something. And I'm like, well, <laughs> what can I say? You know, so uh, my, my real name is Roger, which doesn't work very well in the military. So, um, you know, I've just been going by Ajax for a long time. And uh, yeah, I had to break down some barriers. Um, in many cases, uh, once they realized, you know, what I was doing and, you know, I'd say 90% opened up and, and gave me, you know, great, not just stories, but the underlying emotion and stuff, then we'll get into that, I'm sure. But, but, but would connect me to others. So Chris was probably the first guy that really plugged me in to his network, but that just cascaded it out. So uh, this is a product of, of over two, I've lost count, but over 200 interviews. And uh, so, yeah, being an, being an outsider was helpful in that I had this wider view, but <laughs> I had to, you know, it would have helped if I'd have been a Marine, to be honest. I mean, you know, if I could have said, yes, I'm a Marine from, you know, some other battalion or something, or, or you know, or if I'd have been in, you know, in 3-2, that would have helped. But uh, actually, that's why Chris and Matt and Sean, guys like that, really helped connect me and uh, kind of paved the way for me to, to talk to other folks. Does that make sense? Yeah, you basically... Um... Like, you know, when they deployed, they had their command structure. Everyone knew each other. Everyone had their part of the chain. But then everyone goes their own ways, and you basically remapped, like, the social network component. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about this. So early on, uh, I was I was using Facebook a lot. And I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a noob. I still am in, in a lot of ways for, for social media. But I would get, get on chat sessions and i'd start hitting people up and i'd say oh there's a guy he knows that guy and i'd hit him up or you know just kind of branching out and one night uh i'm sitting there and I'm, i've got two or three chat windows open and uh this is actually with warpig which is the weapons company so there's warpig guys have their own little network and i'm talking to a couple of them and one guy is is being open and he's starting to talk to me about it you know oh yeah and this is all just via text on the the chat mode and uh suddenly other guys and other windows start like grilling me like who are you again who the hell are you why are you asking these questions and so i got one guy that's being friendly and two other guys that are just like kind of hostile assholes well they, i wouldn't say that i really wouldn't say that they're they're protective they're being protective yeah. and they're no, they're kind of like interrogating me and then it dawns on me that I've I've plugged into this network and there's like dozens of guys and they're all sharing stuff. The guy that's friendly to me is also chatting. You know, I'm I'm coherent or not simultaneously. I'm I'm chatting with the entire platoon or whatever they were. But um, then I set up phone calls for the next day. And in in the middle of this, a guy goes, "Yeah, nice try, ISIS." <laughs> it's <laughs> just like shuts me down you know and i'm like okay well i guess i kind of got what i asked for there you know and then you know it worked out but but yeah there were there were moments when who are you why are you talking to me um 
yeah, I don't think I really have anything to say to you. Uh, usually those worked out. There are times, uh, there, there are certain folks that that's in the past, you know, and they are not comfortable talking about it or they just have moved on and you just have to respect that, you know, I, and that's fine. So, but yeah, it would have helped me to be a, an actual Marine <laughs> to, uh, to, to play on that. But yeah. in the end, it all, I think, I think it teased out in a favorable way. Yeah, it's interesting to think of the role that uh, social media played, like all these Marines were able to stay connected via Facebook and you were able to tap into some of those groups for Warpig, for example. Um, but you also mentioned uh, earlier on in your answer um, how some individuals that are interviewed in your book uh, read the whole thing and said something along the lines of, I had no idea that was also going on. So I'd like to turn the next question uh, to everyone else on this podcast. Um, for Chris, Sean, and Matt, how did it feel to read the book? What surprised you about this particular account um, that Ajax relayed? And did the book change anything about the way you saw your experience? And start with you, Chris. Yeah, I had um, I had read a PDF version about a year ago, and I had done some actually some analytics. Ajax and I looked at it and. We sort of wanted to make sure that um, not so much like fair and balanced, but we didn't overuse a term. So I, I actually did that and, and I really enjoyed the book. For me, I, I think there's a couple of perspectives. One, I love the fact that, um, you know, I, I tried to rename Retrans Quezon and then you find out the Marines just called it Retrans anyway. And I, I just love little tidbits like that just to understand that you know, just because you're in charge and you say something and it doesn't always play out that way. Um, I was also very, very intrigued um, with with Warpig, and I, I never realized how many times they're going in and out and the amount of contact that they had. Um, so, so that was intriguing. I'm always very cognizant of Lima 325 and 325 as a whole. Uh, we probably served. Uh, I mean, Sean, what do you think? Most of our most of our true fights were were over there, and and we spent particularly like Sean and I because we would take the leadership group and and go fight in Haditha. Um, I, I'm always interested to see their perspective, and there's been a lot of media coverage on them. And then learn a little bit more about, um, you know, India Company and, and Huseba, the tribal networks, especially. Um, I wasn't as plugged into, so so I really learned a lot. I was reminded of some things, and then let's just face it: like you're reading this in in 2021, and you know maybe Iraq didn't go the way we thought it was going to go. Uh, way back when in, in 2005, same thing with Afghanistan. So I was very cognizant that every time you look at um, the sacrifice and the fights, uh, there's a part of me that says, wow, you know, all of a sudden a decade later, I would I would view what we're doing very differently. Uh, and probably my, my biggest um, reinforcement is we brought so many home. Um, and, and the ones we brought home, I think we did the best job we could to make sure that they could, you know, move on with their lives. But even some of the tales of, of some of the Marines who had some weird incidents or are still struggling, that that does bother with me. And I'll, I'll finally leave it at this. And speaking of, of Facebook, every day I see posts uh, by, by Chris Ryan, Eddie's dad. And I am, as a father, I am just moved um, that, you know, he has supported that sergeant so well um, and is so proud of him. And it, all these pictures around uh, Lake George. Um, and it just reminds me as a Marine, as a dad um, of, of the sacrifice and 
sometimes people can't put it aside or or look at it. They're they're still fighting that war. So to me, that's the most powerful emotion that that I always think about. Chris Ryan and, and Eddie Ryan. Um, what a terrific man! What a terrific story! And obviously, what a terrific Marine. Um, I hope I covered that well. Um, just you a lot of did. you know images coming that way. Yeah. No. Thank you for that answer, um, Sean. For reactions to the book. Um, I uh, read the book. I thought it was, uh, uh, you know, very detailed. Uh, everybody's stories. Uh, I think Ajax captured, uh, from my remembrance and recollection, everything. It was spot on, um, uh, especially Kilo stuff. And I have to agree with uh, uh, finding out about. Uh, let's be honest, because we always thought India Company was the golden children. They got everything, and you know, Kilo Company ones running around uh, but actually reading about it and hearing everything they dealt with with the tribal i mean we'd go there and visit but that's just because we had rings there we weren't embedded with them uh, so reading about that and and seeing what they really dealt with on a daily basis was really eye-opening um, <clears throat> because like chris said we were constantly moving we would do a hop up in Alkaim area. Then we'd be down in Aditha. Heck, we'd even go down to Al-Assad and run missions out of Al-Assad. I mean, Kilo, <laughs> yeah. Kilo Company was everywhere. Um, and, you know, we thought, you know, you know how it is. Everybody's got their own opinion about who's got the most important mission and this, that, and the other. So, um, and Warpig was always impressive. I was real good. I was real close with the first art there uh, at the time. It was first art Cable. Um, um, so, um, knowing what they went through, uh, on a daily basis was, uh, crazy. Um, uh, but yeah, so, uh, probably the most defining to me was, um, of the, of the chapters that I, I, I read most of the book, like you, I couldn't get through it all. I just got it the other day. <laughs> I couldn't get through it in a day and a half. Uh, but the things I, I, I did read, again, 325, just that that one day, uh, well, those two days between, you know, the first day of Matador and the second day. Uh, and like Chris said, being, to, I was really happy with our casualty rate compared uh, to theirs. Not that is anything to be happy about losing any Marines, but uh, I think we did exceptionally well to bring home the amount of Marines we did. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I don't know if uh, Chris has, but I've went to a couple of the uh, Marines funerals since then. Uh, unfortunately, we've lost more being back than we did over there. And that's the that's the hardest issue for me is, uh, couldn't, you know, we protected them, took care of them in combat where we expected to lose Marines. But then we get home and uh, every day um, – getting calls or Facebook messages from Marines and saying, Hey, so-and-so is gone. And uh, so that's, that's the roughest part for me is knowing that, you know, we took care of them over there, but we couldn't take care of them, all of them as good as we did when we got home. So uh, that's, that's pretty much it for me, but the book was uh, uh, very well put together. I thought very detailed. Thank you. Well said. Hey, Frank, if, if I could just one point that, you know, Sean had made earlier is I think it was, uh, you know, there's luck in life. Um, obviously, um, Kilo Company was lucky to have Sean as a, as, as a first time who he is, but also this role that because he was an 0369, 
um, him and Gunny Lynch, like they ran so many, you know, mini sort of um, operations out of the headquarters that would be non-traditional and it's like invaluable. So I, I really think on on so many levels at so many crucial points um, to have like a, a first sergeant with strong infantry and, and solid background, well-respected. Um, and then I also think as I was reading some of this stuff, um, like I like debate, like I'm an Italian from Jersey and um, just seeing Sean right now, I loved his opinion and we would uh, we would go back and forth to do right by the Marines. And um, I think if, if they didn't have such strong staff NCOs, we definitely would have lost more Marines and the Marines that we had wounded, they knew they had um, <laughs> they, 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 with minutes. There's going to be, we're going to, we're going to get you out. We're getting, and I think that helps in, in so many ways. So I just wanted to acknowledge a point that he made earlier that non-Marine audiences may not understand even folks in, in the army that we, we lucked out by MOS and, and quality, quality of character. Let me uh, let me interject a little bit here, uh, some context for particularly for non-Marine, even non-military viewers. So let me let me just describe the battalion a little more. Uh, 3-2 uh, is known as the uh, the Batio Bastards or the Bastards of Batio, which uh, is their motto since World War II, uh, gained during the Battle of Tarawa. So. Uh, that's why Bastards and Brothers is, is in the title. Uh, but it's a a standard, if there's such a thing, but a standard Marine uh, Infantry Battalion uh, has three rifle companies and a weapons company. So when we're talking about these uh, names, Kilo, Warpig, so you had uh, Kilo Company, India Company, and Lima Company. She had three rifle companies. Uh, Lima Company ended up at the the beginning and most of the deployment stuck at Al-Assad Air Base pulling security, which they hated. Uh, so they don't really figure strongly into the narrative of the story until the very end when they were released from that duty. So Lima Company 3-2 is kind of out of the picture. Then India Company is the one that we're referencing was was stuck stuck in a not stuck but assigned to a place uh called uh Camp Gannon which is literally on the border of Syria right up uh at the far western edge of the battlefield and uh they were in this little basically like Fort Apache uh, surrounded by a city and a lot of enemy forces so that's India company under command of uh Frank um Diorio and uh, then Kilo Company is down at what's what was called uh, uh, Camp Al Qaim, which was the the, the larger base. Uh, and Warpig was the weapons company. So, in essence, the only uh, infantry company that three two had available to do operations was Kilo Company, and that's why they ranged all over the battle space and into the adjacent battalions battle space the adjacent battalion was 325 and uh, a marine reserve unit uh basically from ohio so uh, when they were talking about lima company 325 that's what they were talking about they ended up fight a kilo company ended up fighting alongside 325 on many occasions so you have these three different rifle companies then you have the uh war pig is the weapons company and they were divided up 
further into mobile assault platoons. And they were, again, a mobile asset moving around the battle space and doing a lot of stuff that, that Chris was just talking about. So that's kind of the structure of the battalion very loosely. There's some other parts we can talk about maybe later, but um, 3-2 was in the Al-Qaim district. 3-2-5 was in Haditha further to the east. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for the context, Ajax. And thank you for your answers, Chris and Sean. We definitely want to talk a little bit about your guys' relationship relationship as a CO and first art, how that dynamic uh, affected your Marines. But Matt, I'll uh, send it over to you. Reactions to the book. Um, so I learned, so I, I guess I'll start with, you know, it was 2005. I was a boot lance corporal who, you know, later on in the deployment got promoted to corporal. So my operational strategic knowledge of the battle space was like, minuscule to none um so kind of getting that perspective was extremely educational um you know and it kind of increased my awareness of everything else that went on like quite honestly i when brian stan got a silver star i didn't know it was roughly around the same time at the beginning of matador you know it, whether it's my own ignorance or just me focusing on you know everything that everything kilo because all i cared about was kilo and everything that kilo was doing that was my life back then and nothing else really mattered except taking care and being with the people in my platoon and and i guess i could say given everything that happened on may 8th um you know nothing else mattered to me because we had suffered you know huge loss by losing larry and then having Travis Nelson and uh, Doc Alfaro and Lockwood all wounded all in the same instance. So like nothing really else mattered, I guess you can say. So kind of seeing everything on paper um, and, and I'll be real with you, like, you know, everything, you know, me, Chris and Sean had, you know, a, a long career. And I, I think they would probably agree with me that, you know, while you're going through your career, it's one thing after the next, you know, there's never any decompression time at all. So you're just kind of pushing on to the next thing and you're always focusing on the next thing. And so this is, you know, with retiring back in September and getting this book last week, it's kind of the first time I've actually been able to sit down and really, I guess you can say really think about stuff um and decompress and let the feelings come out and remember some things that you haven't remembered in a long time so it's brought on a flood of memories and then it allowed you know i noticed that there's still underlying things going on from back then that i haven't recognized you know um, and that's okay because recognition is a first sign of okay well i recognize this is going on and this is how I'm going to battle this. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to reach out to people that I haven't reached out to in such a long time. So it's it's kind of we describe it as a healing effect or, you know, it, it's given me an opportunity to just kind of sit back, decompress, relax and reach out to people. Mm -hmm. And and 
Um, before we move on to the next question, um, I have to agree with what Chris said about you, Sean. Um, like I've had very few first sergeants in my entire career that I actually respect. Um, and I actually care about, um, and you were, I would honestly say you were that first, first sergeant that I ever had who really showed the merit of what a first sergeant does in a, in, in an infantry battalion, in an infantry company, like you took on that role. And I, a lot of it, I think does have to do with the fact that you are an infantryman first. Uh, but you never let the fact that you were an infantryman take control of your platoons. You let the platoon sergeants and everybody else do their do their job, and you truly cared about the morale and the welfare of the Marines. I remember many a times you and I would pass by each other, me, a, a brand-new promoted boot corporal, and, and you're like, hey, what's going on, Gunlock? And, and, like, you took an interest in each and every person, and for that, you know, being that first uh, real experience of what a first sergeant truly should be, you set that bar in my mind of what it is to be a first sergeant um, in an infantry battalion. And I have to thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, there's just one real quick thing. I know we don't want to dwell on stuff, but I would say too, and I don't know, we may get to this later, but uh, as uh, Kat, uh, Chris said, you know, we had strong staff as Joe's, but you got to understand that myself and Gunny Lynch showed up to that company and battalion in three yeah. months. Three months. Uh, well, me, three months. Gunny Lynch showed up about a week before we were leaving to go to uh, Iraq. Uh, yeah. So we mesh and learn quickly and, and <laughs> yeah, quickly to the caliber of a Marine that Gunny Lynch was, or, you know, retired Sergeant Major Lynch and myself and, and Chris and the XO, uh, we, we mesh well and quickly and, 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 you know, luckily, cause that is not the, uh, typical best case scenario for an infantry company that's going to combat. <laughs> no. Thanks. Um, Ajax. So it's very tempting. It's easy to, characterize this book as just military history um but there's a lot of other aspects to it right uh you're writing about the awakening which really is like a bit of a social and also political movement um but really like when we look at military history uh marines document the hell out of everything right but we don't necessarily tell a story behind it right we have command chronologies we have all these reports and all the things that happen are written down but i think what you did really well was you you infused this story Story of this deployment with a bit of a communal memory so like individual stories and like individual experiences are really coming out that being said um did you have a certain audience in mind when you were writing this yes the uh a combination between the the marines themselves clearly and ultimately really that's who it's for you know i, I frankly i don't i mean i care I would love for this book to really take fire. I, I think it's worthy of it. Uh, I think it would change a lot of people's minds about what happened and, and how they view things. Uh, but really, I wrote it for the Marines themselves. I just uh, my, my father, also a World War II vet, flew P-38s over Europe. I, I treasure the uh, the firsthand letters the, the letters that he wrote, the, the the combat logs that I've got from, you know, I, I treasure those. And I know that uh, anybody that's 
been in combat, you know, they don't have time to write all this stuff down. So, um, you know, I, I, it's kind of my gift. I was like, I, I want to acknowledge them, honor them and give them this, this something that they can take to their families. So that's the second audience is their families, their families and their, their friends network, you know, that are not military folks. So I had to, I had to kind of bridge two different audiences there. The Marines themselves who are, you know, they know every acronym and, <laughs> and then, and then a non-military audience that if you put too many acronyms on the page, their eyes glaze over. So uh, that was an interesting kind of challenge. Uh, but, but I really do believe that the, the general audience could really engage with this story. I think it's, that, that's the other, you know, what I'm hoping to reach. Um and uh, you're, you're right about the uh, Marines documenting everything. It's excellent. There's a lot of excellent programs they have. Uh, and I, I can't remember if you've, if you've already, because I know we got some, some, some questions ahead of time. But um, I don't know, did I answer your question so far? Or is yeah, another- yeah, you did. Um, actually, Part two can, for this? Can, yeah, absolutely. Um, we can jump to that next question, which was, you're doing research on the Marine Corps unit. What's one thing that you were thankful for in terms of just the uh, availability of information, and what's something that just drove you absolutely nuts? I'll, I'll tell you what. Nuts. I'll tell you what drove me nuts, and that is, uh, you mentioned command command chronologies, which is kind of like the baseline for any historian. You you get that command chronology, and you can tell, okay, here's the here's the pace of operation. Here's the different things that happened, uh, and and usually where. So those are very valuable. However, in 3-2's case and all of uh, the 2nd Regimental Combat Team's case, I think it was all the 2nd, it was either 2-MEF, Marine Expeditionary Force, or 2-Marine Division, 2nd Marine Division. They classified all their um, command chronologies for that entire year. So, which was the stupidest thing. I can't, I don't know why they did that. I, I, when I ran into that roadblock, it was like, good grief. What, you know, and I, I could have gone the road of, you know, asking for declassification or FOIA requests. I don't know how to do that. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't take by that. By the time I discovered that I already had a pretty good chronology uh, that I could work from. And then I built, built more on top of that from other sources and from the Marines themselves. So kind of like I, by the time I figured out that command chronologies are super important, I was already past it. Uh, but yeah, that was super frustrating. And frankly, it, it shows a an institutional problem of overclassification that will continue to haunt historians uh, in the next few decades as they try to sort things out in Afghanistan and Iraq, because there were, that's just one example. There are many examples and it's so easy as Chris probably has run into from, from his, the stuff he did, you know, in other places um, you know, they just pull out their rubber stamp, 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 you know, stuff's all supposed to go declassified at a certain point, but I guess it's, anyway, I don't know. So that was frustrating. Um, but on the plus side, two big things. One was, uh, the Marines have, I don't, I think they still do, but they certainly were invested in it. The Marine Corps history division out of Quantico is excellent in many ways. And they have an oral history program that they, I believe, are continuing, but they actually have historians that go to 
to the combat theater <laughs> and they're out there interviewing people and then they continue that there's there's uh people being you know interviewed across the country after their deployments but but even on the battlefield the marines have historians and there was a lieutenant colonel benhoff who uh, appeared in about the middle of their deployment right after matador and gave a series or did a series of interviews with some of the key players I don't believe any of you were interviewed by him, though. Is that correct? Uh, that's think, correct, yeah. Yes, I think he missed Kilo for whatever reason. But um, you were probably deployed. <laughs> or not deployed. You were probably out on an operation. He couldn't find you. Um, so uh, those were excellent. I got access. The, the Marine Corps History uh, Division was very open about that and let, let me have full access to those. And uh, They were some great interviews. Uh, it gave me, like, a window into the minds of Colonel Davis, uh, Colonel Mundy, but also, you know, Brian Stan, we mentioned, there's an interview with him. So just a lot of the key players, I, I was able to kind of like peer into what they were thinking at the time. Um, the other big thing that the Marine Corps did was sponsor uh, what was known as the Awakening Project uh, that was actually conducted by the Institute for Defense Analysis. And it's, it's a multi-volume in-depth study, not just of all kind, but all across Onbar, a multi-year, and they interviewed dozens of key players. And that is all open source, unclassified. And it's just it's got, you know, I just dove into that for years actually. It's it's a it's a phenomenal study. And the Marines were, you know, fully behind that. So those are two great sources that uh, that I leaned heavily on. Yeah, that's great. That's great that um, you found those repositories of information that were really helpful. Um, we've kind of jumped topics, but that's okay. Since we're on the topic, I'll keep asking. Um, can you, you give us an idea of when you started your research, how long it took until you felt like you had enough to start writing the book? Uh, just how it was a lot of work, obviously, a lot yeah. of personal interviews and well, research. I I'm I'm somewhat embarrassed to say how long it took. So it's it something like five five years to to write this. I had already started researching, but um, I wouldn't say I had a a method. In fact, that might have been part of my problems. My I was very chaotic about it. Uh, basically, just you know, when I found something that was interesting, I just keep following that thread and just digging, digging, digging. Um, but I I guess overall I I would say. First, I tried to understand the context, and then I started drilling down into individual events or into you know certain stories by certain people, and then in, and then all these interviews I conducted, almost all by phone or or a chat session, um, that that they would unfold details, and I, I have you know many many interview transcripts, quote unquote. I, I would take rough notes. I, I have horrible handwriting. And uh, then I have to go back and type it up. Uh, but in that process of talking to a guy, taking the notes, reading the notes, typing them up, sending them back to him, he would correct. I mean, Chris and I went through multiple iterations of this on multiple things. So uh, th that kind of gelled a lot of things for me and helped me understand a lot of personal stories. There's there's a ton of stories that are not in <laughs> I was going to ask. Um, there's, there's bound to be 
you did all that research. There's bound to be stuff that's left on the cutting room floor. Um, so was there anything that was like really close to making it into the book and just really couldn't well, find it? Well, something I regret uh, that I wish, I mean, the book is a little fat already, but there are some untold stories. Uh, one of them, or, or, you know, series of stories. One of them is, I mentioned uh, the Lima company, the, the uh, battalion's Lima company stuck at Al-Assad. Well, their third platoon Beowulf. was Beowulf. The call sign Beowulf was the regimental quick reaction force or reserve for whatever they called it. They were in acting all over the AO, all over Western Onbar. And, and they were um, Lieutenant Wingate. I can't remember his first name right now, who I believe settled down in Virginia somewhere as a farmer. <laughs> so someday I'd like to meet that guy. Um, but him and his Beowulf platoon were, you know, Helleborn reaction force, uh, raiding, um, sometimes filled in. They were in some of the, the key operations, Operation Spear. So that's a really interesting story that I, I just didn't have access to and I probably couldn't have fit it in anyway. It's kind of like deserves its own little side episode somewhere. Um, so that's one. Uh, I don't know. That's the first thing that popped into mind. There's, I, I, there are others. So. Yeah. I mean, that's the good thing about everything that you did, all the work you did is you still have it documented. By the way, as someone with terrible handwriting, it's not bad handwriting. It's just in cipher text. Okay. Correct. Correct. It's everyone else can't you can read, read it. it. That's all that matters. I know. That's, that's the problem here. I don't write the shopping list for my wife. She writes them for me. Um, Overall, though, um, I have to say, like, the way that the book is structured and framed, um, I thought, you know, you said you wrote, you wrote it for the Marines. And I think that's proper because it's their story, right? It was their deployment. That makes sense. But you also paced it and you framed it in a way that would make sense to someone who had no idea about what was going on in the world at the moment. Um, in the beginning, you kind of grounded people with a lot of the uh, events that had, like, the the attention of the mainstream media. media. Um, the Abu Ghraib, um, Jessica Lynch. Um, and as you're writing, um, you know, it's mostly chronological, but there's some thematic chapters in there, right? Uh, IEDs are a recurring thing, Corman, the themes of loss and grief. So did those kind of pop out naturally or is that something that you like? How, how early did you identify those themes in your research? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say I identified them so much as I, I had a, the the original vision of the book was to focus on each subunit, each company, and there are certain platoons like the security pl platoon, call sign Chaos, uh, the the Scout Sniper platoon, call sign Reaper. So early on, I had separate chapters for those, uh, and I, I kind of like saw the different companies as characters as their own little, you know, and, and for example, chapter eight on Kilo Company, the introduction to Kilo Company is called Fury because, and Chris has a whole story. I'll let him tell that, but that's the call sign that they operated under in Iraq, Fury. Um, so after I had to, I had to condense things. So some of those, those profile chapters got pushed into other chapters, other sections, uh, or, or sections in other chapters. They're still there, but just more condensed. Uh, so I, I kind of had to give that aspect of it up. I, I do believe that that Kilo Company comes across as a very distinct 
character all its own. I mean, it's certainly shaped by the leaders, but it, you know, Kilo was uh, Colonel Davis, the regimental commander, called them the Fire Brigade, and they've already discussed how they were all over the AO and always on operations. So that's kind of what was going on with Kilo, and very tactically and technically proficient and very aggressive. Um, India Company. Uh, as we've mentioned a little bit, had its own, you know, Fort Apache experience up there in in Camp Gannon, uh, at the edge of the battle space, and had a different kind of personality. And then, you know, same thing with all the others. So, uh, the themes, like the, the ones you mentioned, I guess, kind of just organically would would come out. The the story of the corpsman. Uh, I had a really good source, Jesse Badia, who was the senior corpsman up at uh, Camp Gannon. And uh, I, I guess I should refer, I'm going to, I'm going to shut up here in a minute because there's a lot of other stuff to say that these guys should say, but uh, Chris mentioned earlier, uh, Eddie Ryan, who was one of the, the scout snipers who was up doing an operation in Huseba by Camp Gannon. And uh, there was a tragic friendly fire incident. And he was severely wounded and brain damaged and uh, was was Kazavac'd uh, out, then medevac back and, and had a whole continues a long, you know, recovery. And uh, his family and his father, Chris Ryan, that's who Chris was was referring to and, and how they've handled that. That's referred to and, and discussed at the end of the book uh, to kind of like not close the loop, but to, to talk about, you know, some of the guys that, that went home and the struggles that they faced after. So the Ryan family is, is honored in the book. Um, so yeah, Reaper had its own, uh, I was, I was talking about uh, Jesse Bedia. sorry. So Jesse Bedia was, was the senior corpsman and was involved in rescuing. There were many heroes that got Eddie Ryan off that rooftop and, into the helicopter to, to get him out of there. So that's covered in, in a chapter on devil docks. So it, those themes just kind of organically, you know, popped up when you talk about certain units and certain personalities and events that happened. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the way they crop up in the book is very organic as well. Speaking of themes, I'll turn this uh, to everyone else for a second. Um, this book captured all of you at a particular point in your lives and your Marine Corps careers. Was there a moment in this book that made you reflect on how much you've changed as an individual and perhaps how much the Marine Corps has changed as an organization? And Chris, we'll start with you. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I think um, I think for me, you know, there's there's a there's a movie about leadership. It's called 12 O'Clock High. And there's a lot of takeaways for, for me. The biggest thing is sometimes you have to adopt a, a leadership style for, for the situation. And clearly, even though I, I may not have been always like cognizant is, you know, Sean mentioned it, like we were, we were, before we deployed, we were fighting for every Marine, every corpsman, every training opportunity. Um, we didn't have a typical cycle. We had leadership rotating in and out. We had a bunch of new joins. Uh, I mean, we're going to our battalion commander for drug pops and saying, if they deploy, don't kick them out of the Marine Corps. We need every single Marine. 
Um, and, and, you know, it's a little bit of a sidebar, but just think like we're a superpower. And, you know, I'm at Dermo getting old flak jackets, partly for effectiveness, partly for mental conditioning to line an unarmored uh, Humvee. So for me, you know, looking back at my experience and now being in, in the private sector, I think I've become a lot more skilled of knowing when to adopt those those different uh, styles. I still feel, though, that like um, speed is a weapon and tempo. So um, I rely on a lot of that experience. And, and what I tell my coworkers is like when you deploy for seven months, it's like it's like dog years, right? Like you're not deploying for seven months. You're deploying for 49 months. You're getting a 49, 49 month experience for seven right? Because you're just learning so many lessons. Um, you're getting humbled like, uh, so many times. And um, so for me, I, I definitely think I've I've changed. But the biggest thing is having a, a distinct moments and understanding why. And um, I think the book is also good for that to paint a, a context uh, on, on some of these issues to understand why decisions or other things were made. I also have to like um, when we talked about like the the company, and it is November, right? Like right now is is the anniversary, the Battle of Tarawa. Um, we have the anniversary of Fallujah. I think what was defining for me was Second Marine Division had an all officers call, uh, right before the Battle of Fallujah, and the, and the theme was Iraq is 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 okay now. The Iraqis have it. Focus on uh, stability and support operations, Sasso. Um, and, and I think I've always been really good at, at seeing through bullshit. And I pulled my lieutenants, it was an officer call. And I said, you know, we're allowed to curse. I said, fuck that, that that's not true. And literally the next day was, you know, when, when some of the things happened for the, for the second battle of, of Fallujah, like they were that sort of wrong on what we're doing. And my philosophy was if we can fight, if we can fight with air power, if we can fight with demolitions, if we can do the high tempo stuff. If I have to man an MRE station, that's easy. That's chump change. So for to me, what was defining is not always being like in the in group and identifying like what's the reality and and providing that leadership, even if it wasn't like lockstep with what some of the stuff was. And it's so funny because we're a superpower and and we're roaming around 70 miles of desert fighting equal sized enemies. Uh <laughs> When we were a Marine Corps of, you know, at the time, probably about 183,000. So I bounced around a little bit, but I hope I answered the intent of your question. Yeah, you certainly did. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, me, I was towards, well, towards the end of my career. I was at 18 years already. Um, I'd been in some combat. I'd been, you know, old guys down in Panama, just calls. And, 889 then i was in liberia in 96 but uh this deployment was really and i mean those are combat deployments yeah we took fire but nothing like this and um you know the kinetic fight we were in and uh al-kime so it was uh very uh, defining to see where we as the marine corps came from from my earlier days uh, going out with uh the caliber of Marines that we had, because uh, we had some, as far as I'm concerned, we had great leadership. Uh, Chris was outstanding uh, company commander. Probably, uh, I would say, I had two company commanders I remember in my time. My first company commander and, and Chris. Uh, my first one was uh, 
now retired General uh, Walter Miller. We retired the two mess, uh, CG and uh, Chris. Um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, me and uh, and me, me and Chris, and like you said, he, he's time we, we we go at it back and forth. <laughs> Now and again, a lot of time it was just me keeping his room straight, keeping his shit up. <laughs> <laughs> Naval Academy. <laughs> so, but uh, I mean, but there again, uh, he would always, and the, the biggest thing is that leadership, he would always listen to me and he'd say, first of all, I don't understand, but this is what we're going to do. And I'd be, Roger that, sir. And we'd carry on and we'd get it done. Um, and yeah, I think when you got that kind of relationship between the senior enlisted guy and the, and the senior officer, the commander of the unit, um, uh, you know, we were, and we had, we had the same goal was always there yeah, mission yeah. and, uh, uh, troop welfare. And even with Chris, with, uh, the, the, uh, mission accomplishment, still troop welfare was always on his mind because Ty, Ty always went to the Marine. That's right. Yeah. I'd rather put a tank round in that. I'll put a tank round or AT4 round through that door before I send an individual Marine through it. Um, yeah, and that, that, that happened in Carabla. Yeah, and that's the way, and that's the way we fought. And that's one of the reasons we brought so many Marines home. So to me, it was just at, at being towards the end of my career it, that this deployment really summed everything up. Now, the second part of that question, the Marine Corps today, uh, I, I'll have to say I'm glad I'm retired. We still have this. I think we still have the smartest capability, but I, I don't think the mentality, the mental toughness is what it used to be, in my personal opinion. Um, the, the, and I, I, I mean, the new commandant, he's got his ideas. I, I just don't know why we're cutting some of the things we are, but uh, I just think the individual Marine nowadays is, um, uh, is just not as tough or as hard as, uh, they need to be to get through some of these and some of that is society's problem not just the marine corps where our, our hands are getting tied like we used to always say when i was a drill instructor moms of america are making us where we can't do this we can't do that yeah i mean some of the stuff it's we, some marines take a little bit too but still when it comes to you can't being that we've all been to combat you can't simulate combat training you can get close and the only way to simulate it to put restraints on them and yell at them and, and try to create that fog of war. And it's still going to not compare to what you'll be when those rounds start flying, IEDs start going off. So I think we uh, have lost a little bit of that right now in our Marine Corps. Um, but I still think we're still the finest fighting force in the world, but I don't think it's at the level and it's not technically at this technically still at the level. We still have all the great equipment and all that, it's just the way we're the ability to train and push the Marines like we used to, we can't do any longer. And I think that may hurt us somewhere down the road. So that's my two cents on that. <laughs> hey, I'm smiling. Cause I'm thinking of two stories that I always remember Sean about. I'm so glad he was able to join. I think <laughs> the first one on like the, um, you know, in, in terms of being aligned, but when operation spear, um, which was, you know, a throwdown in the playground. We're going in. The battalion had made a decision to take some of our AAVs. Um, I think it was the wrong decision to, to put them in, in Huseba. Um, and we had a lot of Marines and evidently a whole company of Iraqis um, riding in, in seven tons. And, and you know, we were 
we had seen um, what had happened on May 9th. Um, and, and obviously, you know, um, I mean, Sean was integral in, in terms of the medevac, but also saving Marines. Um, I had taken charge of, of, of that medevac. And, um, you know, we we were very keenly aware of the vulnerabilities of, of IEDs. And even during that op, we hit some. But, um, you know, you all have you have loyalties, you have orders. And, and I'm pitching like our plan. And, you know, finally, like Sean pipes up and, and you can see he's not like a shy guy. He's like, sir, you know, the, the seven ton, he's like going off on, on the seven tons. And I'm trying my best to be loyal to, to battalion on this decision. But it was it was good to see this dynamic and this unseen thing take place at a, at a leadership meeting to understand why we're riding and, and, and having to go into an urban fight in, in seven tons. And um and I think that if everyone just goes lockstep and doesn't debate, doesn't push, uh, you don't arrive. I think also, Sean, I don't know if you remember, and I forget the op, when we were going into Haditha and uh, Blue, seven ton, speaking of it, had hit a mine and we were likely in a minefield. Yes. And yes. I was like, I was like, I'm on the radio and I'm like, first sergeant, get out, guide this vehicle. <laughs> and then you were like, that, well, this anti vehicle mine, like, I'm like 200 pounds in the gear, <laughs> and, but you know, sure as shit, <laughs> I think you were cursing and you got out and, and you moved our vehicle likely out of that, out of that path. And then yeah. you think about shit that's just so common at the time. And I'm telling another man who's sitting next to me, get out, guide our vehicle through a minefield, literally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, we're cursing at each other back and forth. Probably my, my driver, Smith and bodyguard cursing even more, but a man's, you know, a man, a father, a leader just steps out of a vehicle in a minefield and, and walks our, our stuff out. And that's just normal jogging, right? That's just normal jogging. And then afterwards we, we just laugh about it because I'm telling him to step out in a minefield um but you know that that's type of, of some of the dynamic and, and some of the fun uh but but nowadays i i look at things i i had a meeting with with a very very senior leader at, at anheuser-busch where i work and the meeting occurred at at 4 30 on a friday and one of my coworkers said that's grueling you know like that's grueling and i was like uh you know i'm like um you know we have a like a happy hour we have a beer garden i'm like yeah man it's like a 4 30 meeting on a friday and it's totally grueling so, um, you know, life is sort of different in, in terms of the terms. Um, but anyways, I, I just had to chip in on those those two stories because I think they're funny. And that's why I was laughing. I forgot about the minefield. One. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, shit. Yeah, it all worked out. It all worked out. <laughs> uh, yeah. would, would this be a good time to uh, to give kind of a chronology, a, a short chronology of the deployment? Um, we can get I was going to have Matt answer the question. And then we, we can certainly get to that. Um, so I'll start with the second half of the question. And so I don't think the Marine Corps has changed at all. I think what changes is the perspective of the leader as they gain the rank, uh, as they go through the Marine Corps. You get that big, bigger picture. Uh, and as you get older, you always get a, a bigger, more mature perspective on everything that's going on so that's that's what i truly feel i i don't really think that the marine corps has changed the the marine corps is an institution it has its orders it has it has its more admins it has things to kind of keep things in place um you know there are 
aspects of the institution that changes. Um, I think one way the Marine Corps has missed its mark is, you know, and it started probably back in 2012. Yeah, 2012, you know, and even a little bit before that with the tattoo policies and, and, and you know, and tattoo policies was one. And then the way they were drawing down the Marine Corps and they were kicking like combat veterans out of the Marine Corps who were out of regulations. Like you were getting rid of people with all the experience, like the majority of the Marine Corps got kicked out. And now you look at the Marine Corps today and hardly anybody except your most senior leaders like mike if if i had been promoted my last rank if i if i had not decided to stay in i you know the master sergeants and the master guns are the ones now who have the majority of the combat experience of what we experienced back then so they kicked all those guys out so what are you left with you're left with a bunch of people who have the training, who have the knowledge, but they don't have that experience of what it's like to be in combat. And that is a huge hindrance on your combat lethality of what you, you're you capable of doing in combat. Um, so to the first part of the question, uh, let's, let me go back to it real quick, just because it's kind of been so long. Um, so... This, you know, this was, I guess you can say, the most pivotal part of my career uh, so early on in my career. And it's something that has stayed with me for so long. And, you know, the lessons I learned from that deployment have stuck with me my entire deployment. You know, I've always taken, you know, whenever I was a platoon sergeant, when I was an 81 section leader, I took all those those experiences and and try to impart that knowledge and that experience on the Marines. And one one aspect that really sticks out to me is when I was a platoon sergeant with 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, you know, I had one of my squad leaders come up to me and he was like, he's like, Staff Sergeant, um, I have to ask you, what what was it like going through combat the way you did he's like i know you lost friends in combat um i know you had wounded in combat how did you react to that back then and nobody has ever nobody in my career has ever asked me that question and i sat down with him and i sat down with my other squad leaders and i mentored them on you know i told them the stories of my time in three two i told them how I reacted. I told them how we kept going on. Like, you know, when you lose somebody in combat, it's something that you're never going to forget, but I didn't do it in a discouraging manner. I told them, you know, the mission still carries forward. Just, you know, it sucks. It's something that happened in the moment, but you still have a mission that you have to accomplish. You know, your focus kicking down a door and going into a house doesn't change you still go in with the same intensity that you you did before even if you lost somebody and that's that's how i kind of shaped my career and grew my career and that's how i mentored my lieutenant 
you know, I, you know, and I'm still in contact with that Lieutenant who's a company commander. Now, you know, we were, we were potentially going to be given a mission to go into another country uh, where we were severely limited in what we were capable of doing due to the ROEs. And I, and he was, he was all amped up in, and like, I hope we get this mission. I really want to go on this mission. And I was like, sir, let me impart some knowledge on you. I was like, we're going into a situation that's a losing situation. Like I would rather not go on this mission because we have nothing we can fight for what we can't go on posts or we can't go out here with rifles and they want us to all carry pistols. What logic does that make? It doesn't. So it's always bringing that perspective of what can happen and what you are capable of, uh, and imparting that information to people, you know, and, and we're lacking in that field right now, you know, uh, Frank, you and I did an episode, uh about something that master sergeant mcgilton asked us like what can we do to increase the awareness of marksmanship training and the type of shooting that we do and practical shooting in the marine corps and you and i kind of laid it out and where the flaws in the system are and the biggest flaw is we don't have the leadership that has that experience in combat uh today that we had back then so I get, I, I, you know, it's, it's the maturing process. As you get older, you see things from different perspectives and you try and impart that information on the people as, as you get older. Yeah. A good perspective. Um, especially since you went through the deployment at the beginning of your career. Um, but speaking of, so we are losing a lot of combat experience, you know, we're getting into a period of peace. They're no longer handing out the national defense ribbon. They're going to have, Privates graduating from boot camp with no ribbons. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see. Um, but so you and I started this podcast talking about practical shooting. Um, I guess, you know, we can turn the discussion to that for a second. And Ajax haven't forgot. We can still talk about the chronology. Um, I just wanted to discuss this real quick. So in the absence of combat experience and the absence of somebody who's been there, what are some, how, how, how does how does training factor in preparing for the next conflict for you? Guys? Um, are you asking me? Or are you asking? Yeah, me? yeah. I mean, I leading to your to to the question that we discussed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I guess I'll start with the question, and I'll, I'll focus this toward uh, Chris and and Sean. You know you guys have seen my videos over the years. You've seen what I've done on the Marine Corps shooting team. Um, and even before the Marine Corps shooting team, um, you know, I, I'll ask your guys, you know, the question first, let you get, get a chance to answer. Given that you've seen what practical shooting has done for me and how, it, how I have used it to kind of shape and not just me, I, I can't take all the credit, but like Scott Raider, Chris Scott, everybody on the Marine Corps shooting team, Alex Go King, you know, people I'm very close to, um, you know, seeing what we have done on the Marine Corps shooting team to shape marksmanship into the practical shooting disciplines. Um, if that was ready available back then as it is today, how would you have used that? And what would you have used from that, from what you have seen 
in my videos to shape the company uh, to make them more lethal. Um, and we'll start with you, Chris. No, I mean, um, that, that work that you've done is, is powerful. It's an impressive. Um, I, I think the, the biggest thing with, with training and, and Matt, I think we, we might've talked about it in the phone uh, on the phone is the, the amazing company video. And if you ever get a chance, like you got to watch it, uh, that Schneekloff put together a part that I was very proud of is, is the Marines organically had a, like a dedicated, dedicated segment to training. And we trained in combat. Um, so so to me, like we even, you know, sometimes you train to a point you stop. Training was a part of what we did. I think you get better at it. I think we picked milk runs to 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 keep training and try techniques out and innovate in, in today's language. To me, I would have in, incorporated this all along, not up to the point of deployment, but through deployment. Um, it really... I think in, in the end, it's about not only the technical skills, but the confidence, because you train for confidence in your equipment, confidence in your team, and, and confidence in yourself. Um, and I think that the techniques that you're pioneering are are providing that confidence, right? Like what you can do, how you can shoot, how you can win. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm a Marine. I'm about combined arms. And I think we shouldn't fight at a parity. We should bring every weapon to bear and we should time it and um, we should lean into our fires. Um, and that takes a lot of skill, a lot of knowledge, and you can't acquire that overnight. Um, a little bit of a differing is I remember when we had the, the past 13, the third, the, the thermal site, yep. um, Nick Vitalia, very gifted and smart gunner. I went to him, I said, how do you zero this site? Like, I don't know. Let's look at the TM. And we look at it. The, there is no TM. So mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to figure out, you know, the, the MOA where uh, Lieutenant Kalemi came up with an idea of using MRE heaters and on the fly, we, we figured a way to zero this so that we can use a site to an advantage. Um, this is just weird, right? But if you don't have those skills, if you don't have those fundamentals, if you don't have that expertise, you'll just mount something on your weapon and shoot it mm -hmm. and not really try to kill the enemy, not get at them, not use an advantage. Um, so, so I danced around the, the, the question a little bit, not intentionally, but more just a different perspective as, as a leader on, on my POV at, at the company level, um, on, on what we did and, and how to do it and how I would use it. How, how does the, uh, the four second firefight figure into this? Yeah. I mean, the, I had read, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Georgetown history major like Frank here, but I'm a casual historian and I had read what people had said is that, look, you know, you're going to get into a four second firefight. Uh, when I tell my friends, I say, imagine playing hide and go seek in, in the home that you grew up in, you're going to have an advantage. Um, and there is a natural reaction to seek cover. There is a natural reaction to survive. Uh, the problem is, is the enemy does a four second firefight and, and then runs away, drops a weapon, blends back in. Um, and it became very clear to me that we need to win in that four seconds. Um, and we, we also not only need to win, we need to isolate so they can't get away. And then we just kill them in place. Uh, it was just very elementary. The training is very different because you're having to convince someone that, hey, at the most dangerous time in an engagement, I need you doing these sort of things. I need it to be tacit and implied communication. And you need to do it block by block, engagement by engagement. Um, and I also think there's a lot of people who participate in the ritual of combat. 
There's others who are the, the folks who, who really, and it's amazing to me, like time and time who see the enemy, see something happening and um, you just got to strive. And, and I think that's the fun of, I know like special operations are real, um, you know, like highlighted right now, but I think the fun of being a grunt is just getting in and getting that fight and, and winning and then moving to the next block and, and doing the same thing. Um, in our training, I always think of, we were doing saw marksmanship to win that four second fight. And we started counting percentage of bullets, uh, meaning like we were going to grade accuracy as a metric by how many of, of a burst got off. What we found is the Marines were hesitant. They were taking too long. And then I changed the, the scoring and said, just get around into the target, but you only have a limited bit of time don't worry about your ammo. We want to win that four second fight. And what you started feeling is that people on a tricky weapon, squad automatic weapon, um, started leaning in and being, you know, super, super aggressive. And um, I think that paid tremendous dividends because it's a mentality. And um, you're, you're teaching people, hey, this is the the technique. I have to say it, Ajax, I know we talked about it. Um, you know, the battle of Midway, I become fascinated with. But one of the things I realized it was after our time in Iraq is between Pearl Harbor, Battle of Coral Sea, they realized the Japanese had a better fighter and they just trained and invented this tactic called the thatch weave. They just said, hey, we're going to put one plane on full throttle and we're going to be those are the bad guys, the Japanese, and we're going to do it half throttle and we're going to figure out how to win. Um, that's American innovation. And I think we did that a lot in Kilo Company. How do we win when an enemy has so many advantages? And their IED only has to be right once, you know, across a hundred. Um, so yeah, the, the four second firefight was, was our mentality. Um, I still use it today in, in work I do, like let's win immediately. And then we can figure shit out on the back end. Sean. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think our training uh, that we did pre-deployment was, was spot on. And like, uh, Chris said, we constantly train, even when we weren't out squad leaders, platoon sergeants, we were using the ranges, we were using the buildings. Um, so <clears throat> training is continuous, no matter where you're at or what you're doing, you can't get complacent. You can't think, Oh, I'm good enough. You're never good enough. Right. Cause it doesn't take one thing to, to put, put you down. Uh, uh, more centric to your question, Matt, uh, the the shooting techniques and what you're using now, I think they're great, and I think they would have been very handy to have. Uh, but the I've always I always said in the Marine Corps, you know, everybody talk about force recon, direct action. Now you got uh, uh, the Raiders and all that. The big difference is is funding and getting the ammo to shoot all the time. If you gave me the money and the ammo and the ranges, and I could go out and shoot whenever I want all day long. I, I could have everybody just as lethal as those guys right there. Yep. But that's what everybody comes down to is the time to train and the assets, the ammo and the, and the ranges to do it. Um, the techniques are, fun, are, are phenomenal. And I think they would help. And, and you know, the Marine Corps is starting to use them from what I've seen, because uh, I still kind of work on base around around them. So, um, <clears throat> but that's that's I think that's the only drawback to it. I think the techniques and everything are outstanding, and I think they would greatly enhance 
the marksmanship capabilities. However, it comes all comes down to budget, money, availability, and things of that nature. No, I can agree with you there. And I, I guess I'll add a follow on or I'll, I'll just add a comment to it. And, um, you know, the RCO was such a pivotal tool that came out roughly around the time whenever we deployed then uh, prior to deployment we were all still kind of using iron sights and everything. And then whenever we got in country, that's whenever we fell in onto a lot of the optics uh, that we, that we were using over there, which was the, you know, ACOG as we called it back then, RCO as we call it now. And um, there wasn't, you know, we learned to train in country through the fight with those optics, but I can remember uh, in 2000, 2007 when i was in first battalion 9th marines that's whenever i really fell in on an r you know the whole battalion at that point was equipped with rcos and the first real training i had with that optic was in first battalion 9th marines you know you you utilizing the city alliance you know what you know not just using it as a as a uh battle you know optic and understanding each stadia line, but understanding, um, you know, we talk about it with Mike Pannone, Frank, uh, you know, whenever you, I can't think of the term right now, uh, might be the bourbon, but uh, <laughs> uh, the, occluded, the occluded, yeah, occluded yeah. site, you know, that was the first time I, I occluded a site and, you know, really learning the bend and aiming concept and, you know, keeping both eyes open and shooting at targets from 25, 50, 100 yards with an occluded sight, you know, really learning how to use that optic for what it's worth. And then, you know, learning how to use each stadia line for each yard line. That's whenever we really started getting training, training on it. It was well after it was fielded. And I'll even go further saying, you know, recently the Marine Corps signed the contract to get the squad combat optic and, you know, talking to a couple friends that have that optic, they still haven't been properly trained on how to utilize that optic. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be the one, you know, the black sheep of the bunch saying, I don't, I don't agree with having cap sites, cap sites or not sites, but, uh, capped, uh, turrets. Turrets. To me, having capped turrets doesn't allow Marines to really understand how to use the site properly and dial if they need to dial. Um, it, it, it's just fundamentally incorrect, in my opinion. Granted, you should, you know, in, in three gun and two gun and any of the practical shooting disciplines, you are you're utilizing that reticle uh, to get on target, but. You know, if you're in a situation where you're having to dial, well, you're not having that ability because they just capped your turrets. Um, it makes it more rugged in, 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 in all sense of it. But, you know, they're taking control away from the Marines. And a lot of it comes down to, oh, well, it, you know, they don't need to know how to learn. They don't need to learn that. Um, and I, I kind of disagree with that thought process. Trust the Marine that that the Marine can learn something. Have faith in your Marines. It kind of comes down to the whenever, you know, the gas tube to the 249 saw whenever they, you know, before you used to be able to adjust the gas on, on 
on the salt and then they makes it a fi fixed gas tube because and they just took another level of control away from the marine like trust in your marines to make a decision don't take a capability away from them yeah um i'm not sure if you all are familiar with the new rifle qual but it requires you to start at the 500 yard line so your knowledge of that rco and you you kind of have to be dialed in you have to know exactly where you're hitting at 500 you don't have the you don't have the luxury of starting at the whatever the 100 and 200 walking all the way back um ajax you mentioned you wanted to discuss a bit of chronology over to you yeah but, but before i do that i just want to focus a little bit in, in the the absolute terror of chris aiva in a boardroom thinking about the four second firefight and, and what that might entail oh, yeah I, i'm i'm <laughs> like, happy not to talk i got called a nerd about a year ago a data nerd <laughs> well. was, uh, you know but anyways uh no no i i but i i think the same thing is true is is you know I, I, in, in matt sort of hit on it sean hit on it is when marines have confidence with with their weapons they're going to do uh great things and then i think um some of the, the the shooting techniques. I mean, I I was a lieutenant in Hawaii in in three three, and um, a lot of the the ranges that we used were were very highly controlled. Certainly, when you go to Japan, I mean, talk about terrifying. Oh, oh yeah, being <laughs> being a mortar platoon commander and having four Japanese guys standing behind you, um, with with some tripod, and and I'm just waiting to end my career by shooting out or shooting into a plane that's that's coming into <laughs> Tokyo. Um, but I learned my profession, right? I learned it in peacetime. I had a lot of good mentors. And in order to do, to bring in higher firepower, in order to coordinate fires, I needed to know safety. I needed to know the performance. I needed to know these these technical factors. Um, and, you know, talk about like regrets. I, I wish I used my rifle less uh, and and my, my plexiglass map more. Um, to, to really bring more to bear uh, on the enemy. So, you know, again, I think these are lessons that that I apply all, all the time. Um, but if I didn't have a, a high technical knowledge of my profession, we, we couldn't do the things that we we do. Um, and then, you know, you're, you're, it's not marksmanship, but you're hugging earth and, and you're thinking of a J-dam coming down a uh, hundred meters from you and just hoping and praying that, you know, everything works out and that, you're not too tired. You're not too physically stressed. And, and that's just the start of the, the action where you got to pick your body up and, and move to that building. So um, I definitely learned those, those, those lessons. Thank God for flats. He was a great fact. <laughs> yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Let me, let me just for, for the, uh, the viewers give some kind of a, a, a chronology time frame of all this so uh three two arrives in iraq in february of 2005 uh this is a, a couple months well what four months after the battle of fallujah which everybody remembers but it kind of sucked all the attention away from everything else that was going on it had sucked units and and resources into the fallujah so uh three two arrives and is part of regimental combat team two uh, the whole effort out there in far west Iraq is uh, far western Anbar province is uh, an economy of force mission. So they were short manned. Everybody is, and uh, they start their uh, you know battlefield battlefield orientation, and they are um, 
right away into into the gunfight. Uh, they lose the guy in March um, and April. More, I think Kilo was in its first. I can't remember when the your first operation is. Uh, April. April. Our first so, major operation was April. Yeah, the uh, named operation. Yeah. Outer Banks. And then uh, in early May, uh, the uh, well, late April, early May, the uh, regiment decides to do a major operation. I, I should back up. There's a major suicide attack in April on April 11th against uh, Camp Gannon up there on the border. Three suicide uh, vehicles attack the base or the, the firm base and are repulsed, but very close run thing. So they, they start to understand that the Al Qaeda in Iraq, this is Zarqawi's outfit is basically trying to take over the district, trying to take over Al Qaim. Al Qaim actually is a district. It's not just a, a town. And uh, so they realize they're fighting against the foreign fighters that are coming across from Syria and establishing what they call the rat line from the Syrian border all the way into Baghdad, funneling men, arms, and suicide bombers all the way down the Euphrates and into Baghdad. So the first big operation that the battalion puts together along with the regiment is uh, Operation Matador, which kicks off on May 8th, which happens to be Mother's Day. And they start, they, ha, they want to cross the river. I won't, I won't go too much in detail. They want to cross the river and get into an area called Ramana, which they think is a, is a terrorist safe haven. And they end up in a, a hasty assault in a town called New Ubedi, which is where they have the very intense actions that kind of you alluded to, Matt, um, losing Larry Philippon. Uh, and then for the next, I think it's four or five days, um, they actually cross the river. They go through all of Matador, Operation Matador, which was a mixed. <laughs> there were some <laughs> some pros and cons to Operation Matador. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can talk about that. I was thinking maybe at the uh, we could throw that picture up that I sent you, Matt. Yep. Um, at uh, the end of at the end of uh, Operation Matador. Uh, Chris and his his officers. I believe it's at the end. Chris, you can correct me. At some no, point, you take yeah, this this picture. Um, this is uh, Chris there on the. Uh, well, I think it's the left. I don't know how it turns out yeah. in in the internet. Um, that's Chris and his uh, his officers. Now, uh, this is right at the end of the operation when they've just, they've just come out of the field. They're they're fatigued. They're uh, you know they've seen a lot of stuff that's happened, uh, some harrowing things, an AAV that, that was blown up from the, from the other battalion, uh, lost a lot of guys there. So some real hairy stuff. And now this is them uh, right at the end there. And uh, Chris, you want to introduce those players there? Yeah, I, I kind of like this picture because, um, you know, Nate Smith is, is dead center in, in the middle. Um, so um I like that, you know, just it it's sort of not like built around like the company commander, but from from I guess my perspective, pardon me, from left to right is is myself and then my executive officer, uh, John Hayes. And then um we have Nate Smith from second to Mark Bullock in the back, who's a pretty tall and and big guy, college football player. Um, and then we on the right, we have Joseph Clemmy Blue, 
And then we have Clint Cummings. Uh, and it should be noted that he has like a small radio because he's not only like the, the weapons platoon commander, but leader of our like fire support team, which was which was so important. So, um, I, you know, I like this picture. If, if you were to look on my office wall right now, I, I keep it. Um, I think also would, would sort of need for maybe the, the viewers is if, if you look at my right breast on my flak vest, the matte pens. Um, so again, uh, using the rifle less and, and, and really coordinating and understanding, copying stuff down when you're extremely fatigued. And, um, you know, when we say you're out for five days, um, what's remarkable in, in retrospect for me now is there's, there's no control, there's no timeouts, there's no, okay, you know, we, we take a rest, you know, you're on the go for five days straight. And prior to this, I mean, Sean, I don't know how many weeks it was. We were down in Haditha for probably at least two weeks. So you're right. you're operating in the field for two to three weeks, um, 70 miles east, pick up, and, and three days later, you're thrown into a high-tempo combat operation. So, um, you know, it is a month of fatigue that that you're really probably sort of seeing or, or not seeing. Here. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's this, this image is the, is on the cover of the book. So uh, there's been a lot of you know reasons why I chose this, but you know, Chris just hit a lot of them. So this is, like I said, at the end of Matador and I don't, you, you don't have to leave it up, whatever, however it works, but um, that was the image I, I chose, uh, not because they're officers. I know some, I've got some flack about that, but because they're, they're uh, battle-hardened Marines after a very intense operation and a group of brothers, you know, from the battlefield. So uh, after Matador, uh, there's um, they, can, they, they didn't really find the enemy. They didn't find the safe haven they thought they were going to find. In some ways, they, they had the, kind of tipped their hand and they, they'd fled. But a month later, they, they do another bigger operation called Operation Spear. Uh, there was actually another operation in the between that. Which one was that? I can't remember, Chris. The one down in Haditha you, you guys went to. Um, I don't know if it was uh, Market. Uh, the, the market Garden. Market, not Market Garden. New Market. Sorry. New Market. Yeah. New Market. And uh, so, yeah, Kilo runs down there to Haditha and then comes back for Operation Spear. And this was they had really found kind of the headquarters of the AQI uh, in in Al-Qaim district. And it was in a city called Karabala. And so Operation Spear starts on June 17th, and they basically go into a, a essentially a, a Fallujah light scenario, if you want to think of it that way, but clearing a city with dug-in insurgents that's that are waiting for them. And that took uh, another five or six days, and there's some very intense action. Lost another Marine there from Kilo Company, uh, Adam Crumpler. Uh, so, the, you know, they push on through that. Uh, more uh, oh they found some absolute uh, vital documents uh, in this AQI headquarters that they cleared some prisoners that they uh, rescued some some hostages that were being tortured uh, not by the Marines by Al Qaeda and uh, then they roll into more operations after that Kilo is just constantly moving from one operation to another and at the Kind of about this time is when India Company up in Huseba starts an engagement. They had begun an engagement before, but it starts to, to actually come into fruition. An engagement with a Sunni tribe called the Albu Mahal. And very tentative at first, but that, that 
relationship grows over July into August. And by August, mid-August, this little this tribe, which has their own little militia, they're they've been fighting against AQI themselves. And they kind of forge a India company and Captain Diorio forge a tentative cooperation, if you will, with the Abu Mahal tribe. And they kind of join forces to try to kick AQI out of Huseba. At the very end of August, you have a, a big backlash where Zarqawi, it's, it's debatable whether Zarqawi was actually there or not, but he certainly had his emirs there and they were they pull in a whole bunch of forces from all over Iraq to basically surge into Huseiba and take over the battle space. So there's a big fight right at the end of their deployment in August of 2005 where uh, Al-Qaeda comes in, guns blazing into Huseiba, and uh, they, they, they did kick the Abu Mahal out. So then by September, uh, that's when 3-2 has to, you know, they're, they're redeploying. They turn it over to a new battalion called 3-6, uh, which takes over and basically picks up where India Company left off to establish this Abu Mahal and the, the tribes, the tribesmen, some kind of better relationship with them. And within another month or two, have pretty much turned things around again. The battlefield just swings one, one way, then the other way. And this is at the end of the book, describing how 3-6, building on the success that 3-2 had done, um, puts together a cooperative, almost like an alliance, and the, the, the tribe flips completely and now is on the coalition side. And that is what, the, what I term the awakening before the awakening. That happens out in Alkheim that 3-2 built the foundation for. 3-6 capitalized on it and built further and was very successful. Um, and by the end of 2005, early 2006, Alkheim had basically turned into kind of a little peaceful haven. There's Marines in the early part of 2006 that are downtown Huseba eating at kiosks. And that set the stage for the great awakening that happened later in 2006 in Ramadi that a lot of people have heard of. So you had this awakening before the awakening. And that's why the, the deployment of 3-2 was so pivotal, pivotal time, pivotal place, and had these strategic effects. Now, I know that they didn't seem that way at the time. Kilo Company is out there, you know, very kinetic, um, fighting like Chris was talking about almost at parity uh, with very well-armed Al-Qaeda-led insurgents that were fighting to the death. And India Company is still very kinetic because they're defending this uh, little little uh, firm base, but also doing a more you know engagement type with this tribe. So the kind of the two sides, kinetic and non-kinetic working together set the stage so it really was a turning uh, it's overused in history but turning point and and three two was right there at the at the crux when things started to change and then it was obvious after that in uh 2006 
and then early 2007 is when the, uh, the surge starts. So pretty historic and and pivotal moments that these guys lived through. Hey, Ajax, I would add like maybe um, one other thing is at, I, I think it might have been July, late July, but Lima 3-2 returns. Correct. Right. And for us, you know, when, when Ajax paints these things, we're fully, you know, Kila Company had a man, um, a retrans site. So there's a squad fully committed, no electricity on its own, you know, 24-7 for seven months. Uh, had to guard the, the camp. And then in between there, we're running raid cycles. Uh, in between there, we're doing QRFs for um, special forces, uh, special operation forces. And then, you know, July, for me, the arrival of of, of Lima 3-2, uh, and Sean Hankard is, is just a solid officer, you know, as, as a peer. Now they could start chipping in. And I think our raid cycle, some of it, you know, uh, in support of other forces, and and some of it was, we learned a lot of things. We were, you know, really good fighters. We increased our raid tempo all throughout August. I still have to look at the JSOC raid, the, the casualties that they took the night before Al Qaeda pushed into Huseba. August twenty fifth. Yeah, I thank you for the date. As like a what if scenario, right? Like if that raid had gone off and they had gotten that leadership, they decided to do a ground movement. Um, I'll be honest, one of my life regrets was was I pushed hard with, with uh, Colonel Mundy. I pushed hard with, with Major Day. I wanted to go action that target. I felt strongly about it um, when when they took their casualties. Um you know, I, I wanted to, and and the fact that we didn't, it was, it was, it was tough. It was tough as a Marine because three, six on deck. Um, and I just wondered if we could have expedited the cycle that, that um, Ajax just portrayed, had we gotten those targets that night. Um, and it's tough at the, you know, let's talk about reality. You know, my, my grandfather, he said that during World War II, you know, they were all sort of recruited and they didn't care about awards until, your awards counted to when you could go home or not go to fight in the Pacific theater. So all of a sudden, you know, my grandfather was saying that like they started, Hey, remember this happened? Remember this purple heart? Um, no one likes to do stuff at the end of the deployment. It feels like bad juju. Um, so August 25th, we're going home in, in early September. And there was a hesitancy, but I really wanted to go after that target badly, even though we, we took those casualties from, from JSOC in, in Huseba. Um, you know, I, I, I thought I could get a company minus on that target real quick because of the seniority of it. So who knows who it could have been, but I regret that to this day. Let me, uh, put in another layer of context here. So parallel to what three, two was doing and parallel to what the regiment was doing, the RCT two was another campaign, the soft guys. So this is, uh, you know, task force types, uh, tier one, that were out there hunting Zarqawi. They had their own command structure, clearly, and they had uh, their own assets, but they were interlaced. The The conventional side, you know, alongside the Marines were these JSOC guys that were out there in the battle space doing their raids. Um, and Stanley McChrystal writes about it in his, in his memoir uh, that, you know, they had, this was the first time that they actually thought of themselves executing a campaign 
so there was a there was a special ops campaign and the conventional campaign interlaced and parallel. So that's part of what Chris is referring to there. Yeah. You guys have kind of hit on some of the um, questions I had coming up. So we're going to skip a few forward. Uh, Ajax, for you, um, how important was it interviewing individuals involved with all different levels of the war? You make reference to, you know, tactical, operational, strategic levels. Um, and then you, you seem to have gotten a good spread of different ranks and different parts of the conflict. Um, is that something that just came up organically or is that something that you had to like purposely seek out? Well, let me, let me flip it a little bit here. Let me, uh, when I began the book, I thought it was going to be a fairly, you know, linear. Okay. They did this, then they did this, then they did this and, you know, we're wrapping it up and then book is done. That's why I, I thought I could do it in a year. <laughs> and Chris was the first one that really, uh, as we talked and as we did these rapid fire, he has a, a very interesting uh texting style he does these rapid fire like uh, a german mg42 texting it comes in your, like a rapid rapid pace so we had a lot a lot of long sessions like that and i just realized all the layers of emotion underneath and i changed my approach to the book it wasn't all just about the facts it was about the experiences the emotions the feelings underneath the facts and what these guys went through and i decided that, that was really important to convey those to interweave those stories so that's why i did so many interviews at all these different levels um and i started kind of backwards i think most military historians would do you know would start at the top the battalion commander you know the staff, all the all the company commanders, you know, and trickle down. And I I had kind of already met these. I, I mentioned those, those that strange chat session earlier with the war pig guys, but was already facebooking with with the guys who had been lance corporals back then. So I was starting to get the the grunt level view and their stories. So that's kind of where I built from the base up. And Chris was a an exception to that, and then I ran into him early. But I did not uh, actually engage with Colonel Monday until after like two years of of working on this, and then then as soon after that was uh, was Colonel uh, Davis, and both of them were very open and gave me all kinds of great information. Colonel Davis was oh my gosh, the guy was awesome. <laughs> He's a, I still we still talk. So um, I have to add, yeah, I remember before matador you mentioned colonel davis i remember before we departed from matador colonel davis came out and talked to the entire company and i remember i remember one part of his speech that still sticks out to me this day and it was hey gents i know we're missing uh hunting season back in the states right now but it's open hunting season back here kill everything you see and like, you know, and that's kind of paraphrasing and and it's probably misinterpreting some of the uh, elements of it. But I remember like some of those those specifics right there. And it's like that really stuck out to me. It's like, OK, it's time to become relatively unhinged and we are out there going to fight an enemy. And that's what we did. 
It's like we took his words and we put it to purpose. Yeah, and, and I have to say the moral courage and leadership by Colonel Davis, and just to add to Matt's story, I mean, he he looks like a model Marine. He's got a heavy New York accent, right? So um, a lot of leaders before a battle, I mean, I remember before a raid, we, there was a certain officer who came down and like I'm in the turret of an AAV, we're going out like our back gate and he's reviewing the ROE rules with us to get the training requirement in before we're about to launch into a raid, right? So, um, but, you know, I'm like, oh, dear Lord, you know, like this is, you know, like the the senior leaders, um, he clearly was well within the law of armed conflict, right? Um, but he sat there in front of the Marines, much like in my mind, you know, like Eisenhower did in, in meeting with, with, with the airborne troops, knowing that, you know, in his mind, he's sending 80% to his death. Colonel Davis had the moral courage to stand there and answer questions like what Marines care about. Like, you know, hey, if if I think there is a, a, a suicide vehicle um, standing there, can I pump a 203 grenade into it? And he had that courage. He had the right conviction. He was a leader. And you had faith that your leadership and, and every command was was supporting you. And I remember that, too. Um, and, and I admire him for that because he's going on the record. Um mm-hmm. And um, I mean, if, if anyone should have been a general officer, it should have been Colonel Davis. But um, I, I just admire him for that. And also, as as like a junior leader, it takes a lot of pressure off you to balance these two things, right? Like we're in the profession of arms. Um, we're going in. We're going to be shooting four McClicks. Um, and, and you have a lot of pressure on you. And uh, I think Colonel Davis's speech there his accent, his demeanor, his his charisma was was exactly what we needed. Um, so I'm I'm very appreciative of him and and I remember that a little bit more distinctly now, Matt, from it. Yeah. I, I and you know, you, you kind of talk about accents and you kind of talk about demeanor and all that kind of stuff. And it 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 you know, I'm not I know we said kind of focus on the positives, but it's like it's like that's what you remember as Marines. Like you remember two types of Marines. You remember like yeah. the, the New York, you know, the, the, the accent and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and then you remember, you remember like the Southern boys, like, you know, I'm from Miami, but you know, there's times I, I have that Southern draw, but it's like, you know, Sean, you have that Southern draw. You remember, you, you remember certain aspects of Marines and like, you know, us enlisted side, like, you know, we're the Southern boys, we're going out to fight, we're going out to hunt, but you know, and I'm not trying to draw, draw a, a, a negative con connotation here, but it's like, your your model officer that's trying to become that general officer appearance it's like like i you know since i was that young marine in 2005 i was like you know there there's certain officers i i you know i just don't appreciate it and they have that southern baptist uh that that southern baptist kind of speak and it's like it's like a polished type accent that they just practice in front of a mirror. And this is a speech I'm going to have, and this is how I'm going to translate it. And it's like, I don't want to follow that necessarily, but it's like this guy who's hyperactive in a sense. And he's like, Hey, you're got, you guys are going to go do this and I'm going to back you up. That's the guy I'm going to follow. 
I don't know, just just my perspective on things. And it's like, that's one of the things I appreciated from him. It's one of the things I appreciated from you. And then the good old Southern boy thing, that's what I appreciated from you, Sean. Yeah, that's something, sorry to interject. Uh, that's something that I think uh, Ajax should capture quite well in um, your depictions of individuals, right? You talk a little bit about like physical characteristics, um, but you kind of tie their personalities into uh, either the dialects, the accent, where they're from, um, and um, I, you know, that that's you know, you're you're a lot of this is historical, a lot of this is fact based, but there is a little bit of artistic or writerly license that you can take in bringing these people out. Uh, well, thank, out thank you for home. that. Thank you because I um, I wasn't sure I accomplished that, so thank you. No, I mean, like when you when when Matt was like listing off people from different parts of the country, I'm like, yeah, no guy from there, no guy from there. And the same thing when I was reading the book, like you would say somebody had like, you know, uh, I think it was the was it Irish brogue or like a Boston brogue at one point. I was like, ah, Clemmy. Yeah. Clemmy. You you feel like you know those people. Um, because serving in the Marine Corps, you've you've met a lot of those people. Um, my next question. Um, so Ajax, you talked about this a little bit. When you're doing your interviews, some people were, you know, it took a while for some people to open up and some people never really, uh, they never really opened up to you. And it, it makes sense. It's a very personal experience. And um, some people are comfortable talking about it and some people aren't. Um, but the next question is for Chris, Sean, and Matt. Is there an account from 3-2 uh, Kilo Company that you think might have fleshed uh, fleshed out things a little better. Um, is there someone's narrative that you feel like could have been added? Um, and for whatever reason, they just weren't able to give it. Chris, we'll start with you. Um, you know, be, because of the timeline on, on the book, and I think I was on a walk and I was talking, I lived next to a nature preserve. I would, uh, so unfortunately, I think some of the epilogue stories were the ones that were tragic. And, you know, I mean, I, I was just reminded when, when Sean came on that he retired in, in, in 2009, right? Like I just didn't have timelines in my head. Um, you know, I, I forgotten they had 18 years in by the time we were there. And um, I would be fascinated to figure out where, where people went and, and what they did. Um, so I, I always like an epilogue. Like I, I loved in the the movie Animal House, they have an epilogue, and um, I would have liked to have learned where where people ended up. And I think just how life works. Sometimes the more tragic things, you know, appear, and we we capture that, and that that's important. Um, and I remember I, I, Ajax, I, I forget your exact words. I'm like, I'm like, I know you're going to kill me, but can we do an epilogue? And you're like, I am, like I am done. Like you know, like I mean, you said it'd be great, but like it's taken long enough. And and Ajax is a good guy, right? Like he's he's a really good. And I think one of the things he doesn't say is in these two hundred plus interviews, this is like a catharsis for some of the Marines and sailors, right? To voice to to piece things together, to have someone listen. Um, and uh, I mean that's that's some of the reason why it has such an extended timeline. That's also the reason why it's a great book. But I would have loved to have have seen where where everyone ended up. Um, and I think there'd be a lot of surprises and, uh, like I, I, you know, it's like Facebook, right. But I'm like texting, man, I'm so proud of him, how far he's gone and, and to have a successful career and, and to see a Marine do so well. 
and I, I would love to do that with, with so many others and, and learn um, just like a, like a reunion. So anyways, that, that would be my piece that I would add. Okay. Yeah. Very well said. Uh, Sean. Um, I really like the scene. Uh, he wasn't mentioning that much. I don't know if he just didn't want to talk about it because it might've been hard. Um, getting Lynch, uh, his perspective on some things. Yeah. Uh, he did. He, he was out a lot. He was hit twice. Uh, <laughs> I started calling him Mind Magnet Lynch. Uh, <laughs> he'd always find a mine in the middle of the desert. It wasn't like we were on a roadway or nothing. It'd be, <laughs> he got <laughs> hit like by five e IEDs throughout his career. Not just that deployment, but his career. <laughs> uh, but uh, he was very intelligent, and he was uh, – he he was he, he loved the Marines and he was always out there on the battlefield. Uh, if it wasn't running ammo, resupplying ammo, chow, water, I mean, he would go. Even when we were in, we'd go firm and we'd be sitting in our little headquarters building. He'd be heading out to go check on the hey boss. I'm going down here. He comes to hey boss. I'm going down check on first platoon. Or I'm going over here, and he would get in and he you know he just like. I know Matt's probably he'd just go in and start shooting shit with the Marines and telling stories and get them laughing. And I mean, it, I, I'd really like to maybe see more for him. Like I said, I understand some people didn't want to talk about it. Sure. And want to put it in the past. Uh, and that might have been him. Uh, but probably his would have been his and maybe uh, 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 Donnie Brazil. I uh, didn't see much in there from Donnie uh, from India Company. It was mostly uh, Gunny Hogan Camp and. Um, D, uh, Captain Diorio and and their EXO, um, those uh, those two, yeah, those two would be uh, the ones I would have liked to probably seen something from. Uh, but I agree with also uh, Chris uh, epilogue would have been cool. But I mean, I know it's busy. That's what I got Facebook for. Yeah, exactly. I, I get I keep a lot of them. a lot of the, the Marines have done very well for themselves, got degrees and went on and done bigger and better things and it's it's, it's, it's good to see let me so, let me interject yeah. something here on, on this on this topic uh i think there's a, a unfortunate and uh well I, I i think the popular culture depicts veterans completely in the wrong light it's there's a a strain of popular culture in our, in our in in America that thinks of combat veterans as victims, as you know they're damaged. They're they've had this traumatic experience, you know, and uh, some of that, unfortunately, uh, we we actually feed into that, and and we dwell on things that happened or friends that were lost and you know how tough it was that kind of thing but i believe the truth is exactly the opposite i think these experiences and, and by the way i have to caveat i am not a combat veteran i don't claim to be i had i had not a smidgen of the the kind of experiences these guys had so i i respect them greatly and that's part of why i wrote the book but i believe that these these extreme experiences actually build character and and create layers of resiliency and knowledge and understanding that you know are just absolute their advantages 
kind of like what we were joking about with Chris in the boardroom. You know, there's just whole perspectives that other people just don't have. So far from being victims, I think it actually builds them and creates a different kind of man, a better, well, and women, by the way, um, that uh, have capabilities that most people just don't have. So most of the veterans that I've spoken with and, and interacted with have had great successes yeah. and built companies. Uh, a lot of service oriented. They're either, you know, police, fire department, teachers, yeah. uh, in, in other, and a lot of them are serving other veterans. So at the end of the a book called this, uh, a chapter called the struggle, I actually address that. And there are some epilogue stories of guys that have gone on to do some really cool things, just a few of them. But I think they're emblematic of the wider, not just three, two, but the wider community. Uh, and they have, they have tackled those, if you yeah. want to call them demons, you know, the, the demons from, you know, when they saw some really crazy things and they've overcome them. I, I, Matt, I think you're a, a prime example of that. So anyway, I just want to make sure that, that comes across, and I believe that this book actually portrays that really well. I went to the last part of the book talks about the fallen and and the struggle that the guys when they come home. So, yeah, well said, Ajax. But Matt, um, any other perspectives you feel like would have uh, would have added? Uh, maybe it's a selfish perspective, um, mainly because you know from our company it was larry uh that passed uh i would have you know borch you know borch and i reconnected a few years ago um rainy you know him and i have been speaking throughout the period of my career and you know him his wife and i are friends on facebook um and we actually talked last week and then Brandon Gale. Um, and I haven't talked to Gail in quite a while and, and Gail and I were kind of close back then. Um, and I, I understand everybody has their reservations about, you know, speaking about experiences. And I remember, I remember Gail, whenever we were on that deployment, he looked like he was 15 years old. Um, we came back, he went on the Hobbity deployment. He looked like he was 60 years old. Um, and I know that deployment had a huge mental and physical strain on him. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, coming, coming from that side, it was just, you know, from the lower level, it was like, you know, and thinking from the lower level at this point in my life, uh, those are perspectives, other perspectives I would have loved to have seen. And, and I, I understand, you know, the reservations about coming on and speaking on the record and, and, and stuff like that. And I have to, I have to agree with Sean as well in terms of, uh, Lynch, you know, Tracy Lynch. Um, I, I mentioned it before we started recording, like, you know, that guy is a phenomenal leader, uh, absolute professional, absolute war fighter, the guy like when you epitomize a marine like that is one of those individuals that you think of like the picture perfect poster marine 
you know, as a gunny himself, you know, when he was a gunny, and even as a sergeant major, like his his appearance didn't change whatsoever. Uh, but he's, you know, just a phenomenal human being. Um, I, I, I remember the leadership skills that he taught me uh, just by the way he acted. And, you know, that's something that every Marine should emulate and to, to hear his perspective of combat through his voice would have been absolutely beautiful. Well said, um, but I'll let you uh, ask the next question, Matt. Um, so this one kind of rings hard for me, and this is for both you, Chris and Sean. Um, during our deployment, you you two had have had to have had conversations about your me- uh, the mental state of the Marines, um, and Ajax did a good job of depicting the instances in which you needed to be human with the Marines and in the wake of losing someone to combat. You also needed to reorient and focus Marines during redeployment, ensuring them that their, their sacrifice had meaning. Uh, can you give give some insight on the conversations a CO and a senior enlisted advisor would have about their unit and what touch points were important and how did you identify the emotional uh, cores of the unit and how did you tap into them? And I guess I'll give one perspective that I remember very vividly uh, and it was after Operation Matador. And, you know, I remember, Chris, you bringing the entire company in after we finally got back to Alkaim. And it was late that night because I remember even after we finished the operation hitting close to the Syrian border, you know, we went back to New Ubaidi. Then we finally got back to to Camp Alkaim and every single person. And I'm pretty sure that picture was taken shortly after everyone had gotten back from Matador. Uh, we were exhausted. We were tough. We were battle hardened, um, you know, and we were ready just to crash at that point. Um, what perspectives and what went through both of your minds and what conversations did you have with each other in order to keep everyone going? Because I, I think, and I don't mean to drag on, but you know, if anybody listens to this, especially senior Marines or even junior Marines listen to this, this is a perspective that I think can teach every Marine that's about to go into combat, the conversations that need to be had whenever, you know, you lose somebody close. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to pair I'm probably going to get stuff. Maybe not. I'm going to paraphrase my thoughts. The time I realized I had a leadership challenge was it was at the end of the deployment. Uh, Lieutenant Bullock's platoon had done a raid, um, went well, and um, the decision was to do a, a ground medevac, and there was tension between a uh, battalion commander and myself not to bring a, a, a you know a, a bird into like the the target and the objective. So there was a ground medevac back to Alkheim of this uh, HVT. It was HVT number three in, in our AO. So, you know, uh, congrats to, to first platoon, but like they come through the wire and like, I don't hear the radio call for, for like the shock trauma platoon. And, um, 
Lieutenant Bullock was fleeting up to be the XO for the next deployment. And I was sort of switching gears, knowing that I'm not going to go on the next deployment, but we need to have some ascension in, in the ranks. And um, Lieutenant Bullock was an outstanding officer, um, but he was like a game day guy. So I was always in his knickers about prepping and, and after actions. And we don't know where this wounded insurgent's at. And I run after having tension with my battalion commander, I run out to like our area and I see Bullock, who's a, you know, he's, he's a big, tough guy. He's having an after action. And I, I run up and I, I see this lump by Bullock's feet. Laying on the ground. Laying on the ground. <laughs> and, and I'm like, Bullock, why, why isn't, why, where are you at the shock trap? And he, he looked at me, he's like, sir, I'm doing an after action. <laughs> and the Marines are in a school circle, just turns back to them. And he's like, all right, like, what do we need to work on? And there's this insurgent laying down like off to the side in this school circle, struggling to breathe. And I'm like, get this guy to shock trauma right, like right now. And the Marines picked him up. And if you were looking at this, you would almost assume that um, the Marines were faking it like bravado. They were just hard. They were callous. They didn't care. They almost lost some guys that night. And they just threw this guy in the back of a Humvee and took him to shock trauma. Um, I realized then, like, how do you how do you tell this Marine to drive 55 miles an hour in two weeks? How do you how do you and I I think I went to um first sergeant Gregory. I mean, I, I think I did, but we we I had some discussions and I had some real concerns because that incident really uh, didn't didn't bother me. I understood like the the war fighting ethos, and I understood how things progressed. I just wanted to do right by the Marines. Um, and then I I think the the only distinct thing that I'll say is we were flying back. I was the senior person on the plane, and we landed in Shannon, Ireland, and um, I made a call that the Marines could drink. <laughs> and then and then first and the reason why is I wanted to decompression. Right, I wanted to identify. I wanted to see, and and then, you know, first time Gregory was like, what, a, a two beer? I said, just don't have a limit. Just, we don't announce it. We don't say three. <laughs> we don't say two. Let's just, let's just get it out of my, my, my our, our system because I want to, I want to have a decompression way. And, and I was trying to do things, but, you know, I, I had some army lieutenant colonel come up to me and, you know, say that we're violating, but I could decide it. So um, no one ever gets my last name right. So I told, like, I don't know if you remember that, Sean, like the guys, he was going to arrest me or something like that. Yeah. And I was like, we just got back from a fucking hard combat deployment. My name is Ayiva. Go, you know, go tell general whoever and, and we'll drink. But I knew I had a, a, a problem on my hands. I thought we did a good job. When you, you start reading about the book and you realize some some folks and some other incidents I wish I would have, have done better and we recognized it. And, and I think it was a team, but those conversations are are hard. I think meeting parents as a parent was was also hard, the families. And 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 um, you know, I we put up the Philippines on the on the beach to, to honor and, and 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 we're doing this all on the fly. It was all like, you know, like a potluck dinner getting resources together to try to do our best. Um, I wish the service, I wish some of the other things would have done a better job. We realized it and we're doing the best we could when we can. 
but allowing Marines to drink in, in Shannon, Ireland isn't isn't the solution, right? Uh, having a, a great lecture or a great ceremony or 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 doing things. But I do remember at Al-Assad, I wanted to get in our battle gear and thank every Marine after watching the company video. Um, and then have that personal touch and 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 say something personal and and have that uh, man to man intimate, if you will, relationship. So those are some of the memories I have. Um, but man, um, I watch presidents. I mean, Obama and and Bush are two different men. Both say they have no regrets. Um, I don't I don't understand how. I I I have regrets on that issue. That uh, I think I did the best I could at the time retrospect I, I wish i would have done 10 times better or, or or done stuff so um those are images that i have as 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 a company commander at the time before you start sean um i just want to say like reading through the book and and seeing after you know lieutenant smith called on the radio said you know we have a kia and you asked friendly or enemy and he said friendly and you know, one of the things that really, you know, these are the things that you don't hear about until like you read the book and you were more of a friend, a father figure, a brother, and just, you know, Hey, what do you need? Like, those are things that really ring out with me. Um, and those are perspectives that you, 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 you can't be trained for. Like, those are things that you, inherent human nature and how you were raised and how you were brought up those things aren't learned like those are human aspects to your character um that really drive uh and, and bring my point forward which is it you know it's a beautiful thing um and then the other perspective you mentioned Shannon Ireland and drinking, and it just it reminded me of aspects of everybody running off the plane, <laughs> you know. And like I, I, you know, I remember Operation Matador. I was smoking three packs a day on that. I ran out of two cartons of, of cigarettes in like two yeah. days, um, you know. Uh, but we ran to the to the duty free shop. We bought cigarettes, then we bought bottles of Jack Daniels, and then we went outside. We were now, like chain smoking cigarettes, and then we were chugging bottles of Jack Daniels before we got back on the plane. And we let we we took off with one bathroom working on the entire plane <laughs> while we were flying back. Yeah, yeah, blew blew the heads up. <laughs> You know, but the um, when I was in Afghanistan, you know, we were RC Southwest. The British they stop and do a three day, probably not off the the same type, maybe for the Royal Marines and Sangin, but they do a three day decompression in Cyprus. Mm -hmm. And you know, like we did a three hour decompression in Shannon, Ireland. Um, and part of it, I mean, you know, Sean and I were still leaders. We're looking to see who's the wild ones, right? Like who's the exception? So this was was a decompression because I, I would rather have that than be the first time that you you get your cigarettes, your beer, your whatever is is when they're on their own, you don't have that, that you go from massive tight supervision to not. Um, but that was our attempt at doing a, a, a decompression. Um, but in which, a, yeah, go ahead, Sean. <laughs> yeah, in a semi-controlled environment, I had you on the plane. I knew I could yeah exactly 
tie you to the chair if I had to. <laughs> uh, Zero and one is what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have to say uh, kind of the same thing. I mean, we had discussions after every time we, every time we, you know, the two casualties we took, uh, major op. Uh, number one, just having, you know, having the ceremonies, the memorial ceremonies uh, immediately following, you know, because we want one, we wanted you to mourn, I wanted you to mourn your losses of your fellow Marines. And we all needed to do that. And, but two, I wanted to get it done immediately. And then, you know, a lot of times we would be gearing up for another opera. We'd schedule some type of training shortly thereafter to get your minds off of it. Uh, this is why we're in theater. Uh, I'll tell you what what made me nervous. I don't know if y'all remember, but there, you, there was a rumor going around that they wanted to send us. Katrina just happened, and they wanted to send us the new – they were talking about sending us to New Orleans oh, yeah. to do security. And I was like, are they kidding me? You want to take these hardened Marine – combat Marines to New Orleans? I said, they'll be killing people wholesale down there. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would have been <laughs> – You, you know what's been... funny is last week me and Ajax were on the former Action Guys podcast, and I mentioned that – and like I remember Lieutenant Smith coming in and telling me uh I was me, Staff Sergeant Hansen, uh, I believe Rainey, uh Lockwood, we were all playing Madden and Staff Sergeant Hansen's hooch at the time. And Lieutenant Smith came in and was like, Hey, I just wanted to give you a warning order. Uh there's a potential that we could be going over to Katrina to help with the humanitarian relief aid over there. And I I remember looking straight at Lieutenant Smith at the time and saying, if they send us over there, there's going to be more dead people over there from our from us shooting them than what we just killed over here in Iraq. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I mean, I was like, thank God that didn't come to fruition because that would have been a a, a a bad bad thing. But uh, uh, but um, once we did that, like you said, the decompression in uh, Shannon, Ireland, and let's be honest, at that point in time. The Marine Corps hadn't really got down to how we decompress and, you know, the whole um, medical eval when you got back to 30 days back and all that. We were just learning. That was yeah, just right. yeah, on the fly. That was just getting learned on the fly, getting put into places. And it was really kind of left up to uh, the unit to try to figure it out. There was no real guidance. Um, you know, they just had us for the uh, assessment. Medical said they just had you fill out. A, we had to fill out a piece of paper when we got back and turn it in. And that was it. There was no sitting down with somebody talking to them, you know, getting getting real deep, deep with the Marines prior to them taking off or getting out and stuff like that. So it, it was, uh, we, we did have a conversation about what, what we could do to mitigate um, getting back and going on leave. Cause like you said, I mean, even I, you know, first time getting back driving, I, every piece of trash on the side of the yeah. road, every little hole I'm looking at. And then uh, not long after I got back, I went to the first sergeant's uh, symposium up in Quantico because I had missed it the first year because I was in Iraq. And I'm going down 95, and we've been back maybe two months. And a daggone semi, I was next to a semi, I wanted to uh, – Tires blew, and I felt the concussion push my truck over, and I shit my pants. I had to pull over and stop and sit there for like thirty minutes. My heart's racing. I thought sure. I hit it. I thought I died. Um, so I'm saying, man, if, you know how? You know, immediately started thinking about, you know, how are the Marines dealing with this. What are they doing? Sure. Uh, how 
how are they coping with the everyday life? Uh, you know, going down, going down the road, just going, just driving down the road, you're picking out stuff. You're so used to it. You're, just, you know, yeah. always in that uh, high, high yellow, orange yeah. zone. Um, so it, it was definitely conversations we had of what we could do to help mitigate. Um, but, you know, you know, it was just kind of uh, do the best we could do. And like you said, the thing in Ireland, you know, once we did, I, I was good with it. Um we got everybody back home safe. Yeah, we had some people getting a little sick on the airplane, but that was all. <laughs> uh, yeah, let me, let me uh, tell a, a quick story. Uh, it's in the book at the end of Chapter 29, but um, Chris Wright, who was a squad leader up in India Company, so he comes back and he's, uh, you know, they're after their leave or whatever, and they're back in their, you know, day-to-day. Um, but there's a there's a firing range just down the street, I guess, from from the battalion headquarters. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. There's a pistol range. So down there. within within blocks, I guess. And Historic. during the day, you know, as you're doing your duties, you know, that there's firing going off, and Marines are flinching. Marines are you know ducking instinctively. Because of this firing, you know, even though they know it's just the range, but it's just ingrained. These are probably India guys that had been up in Ghana, but um, yeah, he, he talks about that. And that, that kind of is the last scene of one of the chapters. So, you know, Ajax, for me on, on that note, in, in sort of Sean's memory is, um, you know, I, I, I try to use um, you know, my, my combat experience with, with Kilo and other combat experiences, it makes me hyper aware, right? Like it, it gives me an advantage in life to, to understand what's going on, what's unfolding, um, to know where I'm at, to, to know like all these other things. And then I also think it teaches you to be a survivor, right? Like it teaches you how to, to navigate things. And you mentioned resiliency, but but for me, like I'm, um, you know, there's there's a, and maybe some people saw it during like COVID or the pandemic that, you know, when when you're in a combat tour, like I said, you're out, there's there's no rules. There's no timeout. Um, there, there's no end in to to provide this. You're just you're just on your own. You got to work it out. And um, often sometimes I feel as, as a veteran, particularly in this area of the country, like New Jersey, there's others who, who don't understand or don't have that perspective. But I will say that some things that we, that I love about like life in, in America with structure rules and other stuff until you don't experience that on, um, you know, you, you don't have that POV and I'm, I'm grateful for it. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for it. I'm also grateful to have, you know, served with like really strong guys. Like you mentioned, like a gunny lit. I mean, he's hard as, as woodpecker lips, right? Like, Fuck and yeah. you meet so many different people. Um, and this is like a little bit of a sidebar. When when I was in Afghanistan, I was a staff officer. I would smoke uh, cigars and there was this Marine who smoked cigarettes and he was like a kennel master. And like we just sort of timed with each other. And I learned all about uh, all about military working dogs and being being a kennel master. And what I loved about the Marine Corps and, and what I loved about my times, you learned so much for so many different people. You know, I had never run a kettle in my life, but just by smoking a cigar every night with this with this corporal, um, he had taught me about his job and and all the the things. And um, I'm really really appreciative to to experience to know different perspectives, different lives, different parts of the country. Uh, but but that 
that toughness is 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 still there and um I'm I'm very grateful for it. I, I think it would suck to go through life not being aware. Not not being aware and and um you know other things like that. Um so I'm I'm grateful for it. Um appreciate the context that the two of you gave. Just not a lot of Marines get a chance to, you know, um I guess be privy to the conversations that a CEO and a first sergeant have. Um and um just just reading through some of those chapters that AJ yeah. wrote. Um, having done company command myself, conversations I had with my first aren't different situation for you guys, especially with the redeployment, sure. not having any idea how to manage that. Um, having Matt, how 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 drunk were you in Ireland? <laughs> uh, I was one of the reasons why that bathroom was shut down. Okay, <laughs> I'm proud of you, man. Thank you. <laughs> um. But we're we're getting to the end of the questions, um, wrapping up. But um, this next one is for you, Ajax. So I'm um, kind of thinking about like war literature, and you know, uh, Bastards and Brothers is definitely a work of war literature. Uh, looking at previous conflicts, um, I think the the books that came out of like say World War One, All Is Quiet on the Western Front, um, out of Vietnam, I'd say like the things they carried really stands out to me. But out of OIF and OEF, um, I think I'm seeing a lot more nonfiction historical narratives. Um, do you have any perspective of why you think that is? And what are your inspirations? Like what books do you read and look up to? And did you have in mind while you're writing this? Um, I'll go with that one first. Uh, one that I, it's a, it's actually a trio. And it's from uh, Bing West, who I think wrote the kind of the, the seminal works of the Iraq War in three three volumes. He's got the March Up. In fact, they're on my shelf. I'm looking at them right now. So the March Up about the the 2003 invasion, and the Marine part of it. Um, then uh, um, what's the Fallujah book? I just was thinking about it. No, oh, no True Glory, which is about Fallujah, and the lead up to Fallujah, and then. Uh, the strongest tribe, which is about uh, basically the awakening uh, and what we talked about before. Uh, and he talks very briefly in there about Al Qaim. Uh, in fact, has an interview with some of the guys that were there. Uh, but those three, I, if you had to read about the Iraq war and get the context, those three books is what I would recommend. And Bing West is a, a noted author, a really interesting guy former Vietnam Marine, uh, who is, uh, later on, what assistant secretary of something. I can't remember secretary of defense for, I can't remember what his title was, but really interesting guy. And I was able to get an endorsement from him. I wanted him to write the forward busy, busy man, but he gave me a really strong endorsement. Uh, and, uh, so as far as, uh, what was the first part of the game? Um, just so a lot of the notable works at OIF. OIF oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Why, why not more fiction and why, well, I, and I know I, I ran into this when I had to get the book, um, cleared through DOD, uh, huge backlog. Uh, it's funny when I went to the agency to get, get it cleared, uh, cause there were some things in there that I, that I included that I was wondering if they were, first of all, you know, I'm, obligated because i was you know there so i had to had to get it cleared but that took like two weeks <laughs> it was really quick and easy and they had no issues um 
But uh, getting it through the Pentagon was just a nightmare. It took like nine months. It was ridiculous. And uh, it wasn't a nightmare. And it just took a long time. They really had no, you know, I have a funny story about that. I'm going to tell on them because they were, they were such pains in the ass. Um, So it had to get shopped out to uh, special operations command because I mentioned a lot of that stuff. And uh, so one of my chapters, uh, I called it black and white because of black side soft and white side soft. Right. And these are common terms, right? This is anybody who knows anything about special operations forces has heard black side, white side. And uh, so I named it black and white. Well, (laughs) whoever did the, the reviewing came back and said, no, you can't say black side and white side. And by the way, you have to change the name of the chapter. You can't say black and white. <laughs> I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. And I I don't know the reason for it. I, what I assume is that it's basically a political correct thing. They just don't want, <laughs> it's like, really? Black and white? That's your problem? And um so yeah, it took them nine months to tell, have me to change the name of a chapter called Black and White, and then I changed it to Gray Zones. It's like, okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh my gosh. So that was frustrating. But a lot of authors are coming out now. There, there's a a lot of people writing about Afghanistan and Iraq. So I'm just one of a stream of things coming out. And uh, that's when I realized that it's like, yeah, you're just one guy out of 50 that are going through the process right now. Um, And that's great. That's actually awesome. There's so many stories. I mean, in one way, 3-2 is a very typical story. A Marine battalion at war in a hotspot. You you can find dozens of those stories. Um, I think there's a lot of other layers to this that make it unique. But there are many other, I'm looking at a bookshelf full of them. That, that, that I've read about, um, you know, units. One thing unique about Bastards and Brothers is it's a battalion level book and, and provides the, actually the regimental scale too. So it's got both very personal content or personal stories along with the operational context. So that's something that's, I don't see in many books at all. I can think of only one other book that's written at a battalion level. Um and I, I think you're going to see more and that's all to the good. And I think well, there's already been a lot of books on Afghanistan, but I think you're going to see another wave of Afghanistan veterans that are going to start telling their story. It's a much more complex story, frankly, but um, hmm. it went on I, so I think Frank, your, your question is really interesting. Like it, um, be careful here, but it, if you look on my bookshelf, like catch 22, those are these are books that that I sort of I, um, I forgot to mention Cast Twenty Two. Yeah, I mean I've I've read that five times. I I think one of the reasons, and I live and I work in 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 Manhattan. I think there's a danger if you would have asked me back in 2005 during this deployment if a draft was a good thing, I'd have said no. Uh, now there's a part of me that says, well, you know, um, and and you start looking at you know Marines and and other stuff. There's there's a little bit of a caste system in our today's military that only a few percent of America serves. And I think fiction wouldn't serve like a larger audience base. More people could read the nonfiction because they can't relate to it. They can't relate to fiction. Uh, all quiet on the Western front, you you serve in the trenches for a year, you get the book real quick. 
Um, so to me, I think we're in a danger that you could just deploy battalions and you could tie a yellow ribbon, you could make donations, you could put a bumper sticker, um, but but you may not have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I Ajax, I don't know if it's mentioned about your son, you know, who who is a ranger who's done a lot of deployments. Um, yeah, that, that was a a, a subliminal point. a subliminal motivation. Yeah, right. So I couldn't really write about him. You know, uh, first of all, the rangers, everything's classified, sure. but um, but also very episodic. He doesn't even know <laughs> what happened. He's on an air. He was on a helicopter. They got off the helicopter. They kicked in the door and then they got back on it. You know, it's like yeah. very, very episodic at that level. Uh, and there are there are some books that go into what's in fact, I'm looking at him right now. Run to the Sound of the Guns, another uh, one of his platoon sergeants that wrote a book. But um, yeah, definitely uh, laced to this. And right after this, you tell your story about how you got Fury as the call sign. Um, okay, so yeah. I, my son's name is David, and he's now a first sergeant, by the way, Sean. And huh. I hope, hope he listens to some of this if he has time. <laughs> he doesn't have time, really. But yeah, he's, he's now the first sergeant in 2nd Ranger Battalion. Uh, it, it's the same company, Bravo Company, uh, that he started at as a PFC. Wow. He has he has worked through what he's at twelve combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, at the tip of the spear, wow. uh, doing fantastic, doing well, but yeah, it, in a way, uh, it's kind of like okay, I can't write about my son, but here's a group of warriors that I can define, and I can yeah. I can reach out to them, and I can I can establish. So in in a way, you're kind of like the the what's the, word? the the ersatz son that I yeah write about, but yeah, tell tell your story about the call sign. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, you know, um, uh, my son's name, and actually one of the reasons why I was late to the podcast is my son just returned from from uh, college today in Colorado. He's in Air Force ROTC, yeah. so it's like uh, the black sheep of the family. But anyways. <laughs> We were in a battalion meeting, and um, I I do think that not only like Kilo was a fire brigade, but we were economy of force, and um, I, I think the battalion because of of all the the good things put a lot on us, but we're like at a meeting, and like they're like your call sign is like a prowler call sign. It was voodoo, right? Correct. Yeah, voodoo, and they're like you can't use this, and I'm like it was just after like hey you don't get this, you don't get that, and it's like oh by the way like the camo who's the S6. So he's like sixth in the order of briefing is like, oh, by the way, you can't use your call sign. And I'm like, like come on, guys. So my, my son um, is named after my my grandfather, Fiorello. We call him Fury. And I just I just said, fine, just 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 call us Fury. Um, so it's it's personal to me that that became our our call sign. What it what it taught me though is is you know and, and my son's older and like I said he's he's now nineteen, uh, my daughter's thinking about serving too. Um, it taught me that you know I'm in charge of other people's sons, and um, you know I I have to give them like a fighting chance and that's where you know Ty goes to the Marine. Um, I have to support them. I have to mentor them. I have to take care of them because I really believe that our youth is is America's treasure. 
And, um, you know, I, I took that to, uh, to, to heart and, and did the best I can. So for me, it, it wasn't only about Fury being like my son, but it was a reminder that you're in charge of, of other people's, um, you know, children. And I think I would want someone to treat my son the, the same way. And, and I've always used that even today um, as like a litmus test. You know, what was it fair? What was it not fair? Um, so so that's how it how it came about that, um, you know, the call sign became uh, Fury. It was really sort of some prowler squadron named Voodoo. Um, we had to pick Fury. <laughs> I think it's, that's a great, a great emblem, really, of, you know, several layers there. So Fury being Kilo Company, a furious fighter, you know, it's like. Yeah, when you went up against Kilo, you were going to face Fury, man. Yeah, I mean the the Marines <clears throat> did did so well, and and I have to give also we we talked about the staff NCOs, and we know that one thing that I've always said is uh, I, I've I've benefited tremendously from from like the U.S. government education training. Certainly, when I was a company commander, the Marine Corps had trained me well for that job. Right. Like I had gone through six months of, of the basic school. I've been to uh, infantry officers course uh, myself and, and my college roommate were the only infantry officers to go to field artillery class six months. So when you look at how much training I had before I became a company commander and, and before I had Kilo, I had a, a headquarters uh, company, H&S company. When you look at the squad leaders in Iraq. Right. Like by by organization and de design, these are supposed to be E5s. I, I don't know, Sean, how many how many Lance Corporal squad leaders did did we have? Half? Third? At least a half. half you know, so when you look at this conflict, it's one at the squad level. And you have Marines who haven't been to like a squad leaders course. Right. Like they're on their first deployment. Um, they just you know, they have maybe two years in the Marine Corps. Uh, I was and and the part that would just drive me livid with senior officers is when they would say just doing their job. Well, a lance corporal, by definition, who's a squad leader, isn't just doing their job. They're really working like three levels up. Uh, and I found that amazing how well those squad leaders and really those NCOs did. Uh, you know, Matt's like one of them uh, because like you just don't have a sergeant squad leader. Uh, it just doesn't happen. It just, it's it's like a purple unicorn running around out there. It's in the wild. So I'm also uh, really, really, really proud of, of how those Marines did. Um, at, at, you know, and, and now you look back and they're like, these guys are like 20. They can't they can't drink in Shannon Island or whatever. So uh, anyway, I'll, I'll 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 pause there. I know that we're going to have to start uh, wrapping up here. Yeah, I uh, just want to take a moment. Thank you all for you know, spending time. We've been at this for quite a while, gentlemen. Um, really great discussion. Great opportunity to pick your guys' brains. Um, Bastards and Brothers, you can go on bastardsandbrothers.com and you can pre-order it, hardcover or softcover. Um, and it will come out around the uh, November, December timeframe. Anything more concrete right. than that, Ajax? Uh, being printed soon, sooner, sooner than hopefully, but... Um... Yeah. But it highly recommended. Um, after I get through the semester, I'm definitely going to go back and like, read more in depth, um, not just skim and gut the book like I have. Um, but as we're wrapping up, I'll just give everyone a chance to uh, talk to the audience.
audience and say their last piece. Um, we'll go Chris, Sean, Matt, and then we'll finish with you, Ajax. But Chris, uh, floor is yours. No, I'm I'm so proud of the Marines and Sailors I, I served with. Um, I went back for my 25th college uh, reunion and I talked to different folks. I, I went to the Naval Academy. So some are SEALs and, and had different experience. Some are pilots. Uh, some are submarine officers and, and they had a different experience during the past two decades. The piece that I sort of realized is, um, you know, you, you spend a life. I, I was meant to be Kilo Company's commander. Everything I learned, everything I did was was for that moment. Uh, and anything else I accomplished professionally in life is is just gravy. Um, and, and I think sometimes in a military career that's up and out, you, you sort of define things in different ways. I, I am so proud of um, the Marines I serve. I'm so proud of the job we did. I'm so proud um, how many Marines we went home. And I'm so proud that, um, you know, when you read the book, um, you know, Killer Kilo, um, just to just all the levels of operation we did in, in seven months of intense combat. Um, I, I'm just, uh, you know, in retrospect, I'm in awe. So uh, I, I remain humbled, very appreciative and very cognizant of those who, um, you know, paid the ultimate sacrifice and the families. And um, I hope anything that we did, the next generation, whether it's my son or daughter, um, they they don't have to deploy and and, and fight the way that we had to fight. Um, really undermanned, understaffed, um, and under-equipped, but we did the best we can. Sean? Yeah, again, I mean, Chris hit it on the nail head. Proud of the, the Marines. Um, it was probably the pivotal point of my career, even though it was at the end. Uh, um, just watching the Marines, they put me in awe every time we do a mission. Never hesitated, never complained. If they did, they didn't do it to my face anyway. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they 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 worked hard. I would like to add back where Ajax was talking about that photo of the company officers, and we were talking about like they were, uh, you know, constant. That's like a month. It's actually more than a month because I'll tell you right now, Chris. Even when we were back, he was constantly planning, doing his own intelligence gathering, sales, uh, asking out the other officers. So they worked hard. They were they were on 24-7. He'd come in, get a couple hours sleep, go back, stay up half the night over in the S2 shop doing work, gathering information, setting up missions for us so we could be successful. So um, to watch him work uh, was a was a was a, a great experience. And, and uh, sir, I'd say, uh, again, you're you're the reason we brought a lot of all of them. Thank you. And again, Matt, guys like you, you you made it happen, right? Uh, uh, we just kind of pointed you in the right direction, gave you the tools, and, and the Marines did the work, all right? So, again, I'm proud to be a part of uh, Kilo 3-2 uh, and proud to be part of this book. And, I, AJ, I'm glad you wrote the book because, like I've always said, if we don't study and, and read history, then we're doomed to repeat yep. it we, in the future. Uh, Future Marine Corps leaders can read this book, learn from it, and 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 not make some of the mistakes and do some of the things a little different. So again, great. And only thing I will add: you said you went to your reunion, sir. Me and Matt's been talking. We're going to try to put together a kilo three two. Oh, oh man, that's awesome. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. I'm <laughs> we'll there. Call, 
we'll talk Shannon about Ireland. that. <laughs> Shannon Ireland. <laughs> yes. That's all I got. All right. Matt. So I'll start with thanking you two gentlemen for, you know, agreeing to come on this. Uh, I know it's a lot different. It's, you know, and it's stressful in a different sense. Um, but thank you. I appreciate this. And I think the Marines will appreciate this. Um, you know, to all the Marines out there, thank you uh, for everything you did on the deployment. You know, I was right there with you. Uh, I love you all um, to the friends that I still speak to, especially, um, you know, another person I have to thank. Uh, and, you know, I, I consider a very dear friend is, you know, Master Guns, Tim Hansen. I know, Sean, you're still keeping contact with him. You still get together with him. Um, you know, he was a he was a monumental figure, in my opinion, in in Kilo Company at that time, especially with second platoon, with everything that we had gone through. He was the glue that kept everybody in line and focused on the next objective. Uh, so I have to say thank you for, you know, keeping us focused and keeping us alive. Um, you know, when I pinned on staff sergeant, I had him, I asked him, I was like, I want you to be one of the individuals to pin me on, you know. Uh, so he, you know, even when I was getting out, you know, I was keeping in contact with him uh and ajax thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell part of my story uh and to tell part of kilo's story um i really appreciate that um but yeah uh and to all the marines out there whether you served in three two whether you served in another battalion or you're currently in your first enlistment in the marine corps no matter what you're going through, there are resources out there to help you. Um, there's, you know, talk. Uh, one of the biggest things, and my wife probably fucking hates me for this, is I'm on my phone more than a fucking old woman. Uh, <laughs> she, she often says, I speak to, you know, people on the phone more in one day than she speaks to in two months. You know, and it's true. I do. I speak to people all the time. Uh, it's indicative to my position at work. It's indicative to what I do in the shooting community and, you know, and what I do on this podcast. I'm always constantly communicating with people. And and that's kind of the the that's what I I lean back on when I'm going into a hard time. You know, I talk to people. And that's a message I want to get out there to other people. Just reach out to people that you, you love, you, you trust, and you have confidence in and just talk to them. So that's all I really have. Thanks, Matt. Ajax, floor is yours. So uh, I, I am actually I'm humbled, deeply humbled. I mean, I went into this process being humble, being an air force puke, you know, and, and talking to these Marines, but um I, I am deeply respectful for what they did and for, you know, they didn't just do it for the country. They did it for each other, but they were there when their country needed them. And I am just so thankful and respectful and 
you know, it's just an honor now that I've met them, you know, I've met Chris in person soon. I hope to meet Matt and, and Sean in person. I've met a few of the others, but these, you know, basically I'm seeing my heroes, the guys that I, you know, they've, they've told me their stories and, and uh, they've, you know, kind of poured their hearts out to me in some cases. So it's just an honor. And, and I hope the book does them justice. I do believe that the, uh, that the book is something that every American should read because it really highlights what a generation of Americans accomplished and did in these last 20 years. Uh, And it's emblematic of so much. So that's what I hope a wider audience will, will, you know, be able to access it and, and read it. But the other part of it is I really hope that Marines and other, you know, anyone in the military can learn so much out of this. Uh, one of the other endorsements, by the way, is uh, H.R. McMaster, who uh, an Army general, but, uh, with, you know, one of the heroes of uh, the Gulf War um, and then later became a three star and, you know, national security advisor. Uh, so he he says every junior, you know, NCO, junior officer and even senior leaders ought to read this. There's so many lessons embedded. We talked about some of them today. Uh, some of them are just strictly tactical, but so many of the others are of that in-depth, you know, how do you come back? How do you maintain your morale and your, um, you know, your edge over the long term of many deployments? So there's, there's so many valuable lessons in there and, uh, you know, check it out, bastardsandbrothers.com. And I, I just thank you guys for the opportunities I've had to meet you and talk to you and get to know you a little, little more. Likewise. Absolutely. To our listeners, if you're still with us, thank you for listening through. This is definitely our longest episode, um, but it's an important episode. So thank you very much for taking the time to listen and let us know how we're doing.